but are you okay with that? I go, sure. So I've got a regular deck of, you know, normal cards that he's got like, you know, these blank cards that are written on, you know, with, uh-huh. you know, they had like a, you know, a template that they use of cards. And so we're playing the game. And then, and then for anybody who plays Magic the Gathering, if you lose 20 life points, you lose the game, right? You know, that's right. the, yeah. what are the deck? So all of a sudden he puts on the board a 2020 green creature that has berserk, you know, like you can't stop it. Uh-huh. And he wins the game on one card play. And I go, and I, my, I remember I go look at him and go, nice card. <laughs> <laughs> Hi everybody, this is Soren Johnson and you are listening to Designer Notes, a podcast about why we make games. Today we are talking to game designer Mark Herman, who started his career at SBI in the 1970s designing war games. Mark was the CEO of Victory Games before a long career in defense consulting as a senior executive advisor for Booz Allen Hamilton. He has designed over 40 games, has won multiple design awards, and is perhaps best known for pioneering card-based war games with We the People. Mark is interviewed by Bruce Garrick, neurosurgeon, games journalist, and original panelist from Three Moves Ahead. Just finishing up answering a, uh, a Churchill question. I, I think people just don't believe rules, and it just says, do you really mean what it says? The answer is yes. That's the <laughs> what rule is that? There's a view like, Okay, that's a green piece, that's a blue piece, that's a red piece front, right? So therefore, it's that's my piece, right? Right, right. So if I win your directed offensive, which in front of in front of which of my fronts are you going to put it on? The answer is, and it says in the rules, you put it in front of any front. You know, they mm-hmm. it's like, you know, they they're a lot of people just can't break free of sort of what they were trained to do for the last you know thirty years. So <laughs> that's funny. I I I'm I'm I guess I sh- I guess I'm surprised, although maybe I shouldn't be. No, I mean. It, it's like they're reading the rule, but they're applying it, you know, in, within a within a paradigm that the, the game is not falling within, you know. Right. So again, it's not a traditional, you know, war game, right? right. So mm-hmm. you know, they go, oh, well, this is uh, this is my color piece. Why would my why would my stuff go in front of somebody else's front? The answer is you gotta because it because it can, right? Because that's the rule, yeah. Well, no, but it's also the, what it, what it, what what is the metaphor? The metaphor is that we sat in the conference. And we decided, and now deciding means that I won the issue, right? So you may not really decide, but we decided by my fact that I won the issue and the argument that we're going to push this offensive and it, right. it's in front, and you didn't like, you don't even like that, but the answer right. is too bad. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, it's, it's an abstraction, right? So, I mean, the, the, I, my understanding of the directed offensive is that when, when Stalin puts the directed offensive, you know, in front of something or, or, or you put your directed offensive in front of the, you know, Manchurian uh, front, whatever. That means that you guys all agreed, right? You may not like it, but at the within the confines of the conference, that's what that's what you guys came up with as as part of the. That's hundred. That's a, that's one hundred percent correct. Yeah. Exactly what happened, and and then what happened in the conferences. Right. So, well, that's funny. Uh, I'm uh, the uh, that that podcast, by the way, will go up on Wednesday. Oh, good. So hopefully we'll. Get some more, even more feedback on that, and see what people think. So I'm, I'm just fascinated by the by the whole. I'm I'm also really dying to to, to check out Pericles. I can't wait till that comes out. Yeah, well, you know, everybody's always excited about the next game I haven't done yet, right? Mm-hmm. 
that's good. I mean, at least I get, at least I get to do one more game. Yeah. Well, I guess the point is that uh, that you know you've got you have an interesting you've you've developed an interesting mechanic. I mean, obviously, I want to play more Churchill. I, it, the problem with that is I have to find three people. Well, no, you, no. If you're playing, you only find, need to find two more. By the way, in case you were confused. <laughs> That's right. Well, I have to find. Yes, you're you're correct. I have to find myself as a finished. I, I will tell you. By the way, I will tell you that I have now. You know, wasn't how I I, I did play test it this way, but on at least two occasions in the last, let's say, three weeks, I played two player and had a really good time. You know, using the bot for the third player played very well in both cases. In fact, in the most recent one with a guy named uh, Andrew Bignuzzi, mm-hmm. uh, from Canada. Yep. Uh, it was a three-way tie. Hmm. So the bot, the bot did surprise. I mean, it's doing. And people are coming back to me and saying that these things are just guidelines. I'm going, and I said to Andrew, you know, I said we're going to read these out. I'm going to read this to you, and you tell me what we're going to do. You know, I'm not going to, you know, put a Herman spin on it kind of thing. Right. I don't know. If they think that's a guideline, I'm not sure what they think a rule looks. How that looks less less implied than a rule or something. Mm-hmm. You know, it says. Play your strongest card. All right. Well, can you, you can add to five, right? You know, so. <laughs> right. Anyway, it's all. Yeah. It's the fun of being. It's the. I tell you, I find myself these days spending. Um, you know, compared to one big change from now in the old days is I spend a lot more time after market. You know, after the game's on the market. Um, you know, just trying to um, make sure that the you know that people are you know getting support that they need and want. And responding to making sure that the narrative stays, you know, to the degree I can make sure it's a fair narrative. You know, people don't like the game. They can say what they want, and that happens all the time. But that at least if they're going to say things that are uh, negative, at least I can, uh, uh, you know, allay the incorrect information, not their opinion. You know, but like if they're right. saying this is, this is the way the game plays, they go, well, maybe not. You know? <laughs> right, right. Yeah, that's true. Well, let's talk. Let's talk then, because this is <clears throat> this is what uh, what I want. So, um, Soren Johnson, who designed uh, Civ Four, and uh, uh, is uh, doing this series called Designer Notes, mm-hmm. and he's been doing a bunch of stuff about you know video game designers. He just actually interviewed Sid Meier. Uh, oh yeah, I know Sid. He's yeah. a great guy, by the way. Yeah. Um, so yeah, he worked with Sid Meier, and um, he interviewed Sid Meier. He actually interviewed Bruce Shelley. Uh, oh, I, I know. I also know Bruce Shelley. Very, <laughs> well, back from the day. I don't. I haven't been around Bruce in a long time. Right. But. Right. But he, they, they they were all you know Bruce was at SPI when I was yep. there at the very end. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and so so he was an interesting one, an interesting talk. And I I, I emailed Soren. I said, hey, you know this is great. I'd I'd love to uh, you know this is or actually I didn't even say I'd love to. I just said uh, you know this is kind of inspiring me to try to get some 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 uh, you know really accomplished game designers to talk about their stuff, the board game stuff. And he said, well, if you can get somebody uh, you know to talk with you, uh, I'd love to put it on designers' notes. And I said, well. Uh, I was, you know, I've been talking to Mark Herman. He's like, oh, Mark Herman, yeah, yeah, definitely get Mark Herman. So I was like, okay. Well, that's very nice that he knows. Most of the video guys don't even know who I am. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think he probably he, he probably did some research. Uh, I think when he talked to Bruce Shelley, he uh, uh, he uh, you know he's he's familiar. He's and and Soren also actually is uh, is an old. He plays a lot of. He had in the old days played a lot of board games. I mean, he when we were talking about his new design, he um, he uh, the one he off world trading company. He just made this new game. Uh, and he said, uh, "Yeah, I got the idea from this game called from GDW from 1978 called Belter." I'm like, "Oh my God, Soren!" Yeah. So, uh, so okay. So, so this is the way I'd like to uh, the way I'd like to do it. So let's just talk about um, the way he did it with uh, Bruce, and I think the way he did it with Sid was that he just kind of started at the beginning and just talked about you know, it chronologically, kind of like how things went, and then just talk about. Hey, different- how things went? What do you mean? What 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 is this? You know, what is the angle? What, the angle know? is here is Mark Herman. 
Yeah. He has done a million things in the hobby. Uh, he's designed all these games. He's been in the, you know, sort of at the forefront of a lot, a lot, a lot of these changes. You were at SPI. You went to Victory Games. Mm-hmm. Um, you've been designing for GMT. There was, you know, the whole, I want to talk about the, um, uh, you know, kind of the lull in the hobby, kind of what you were doing between, there's kind of this, like, so interregnum of the, uh, you know, late, between the late 80s and the sort of the early mid 90s. Well, you know, well, obviously in the 80s I was running Victory Games. So right, was, right, right. But but the one Victory Games folded. Oh, yeah. And then, you know, then there's this period. And, and the way I see the hobby is that there was a, a period of time where Victory Games folded. Um, Avalon Hill was sort of chugging along, but people weren't – it didn't seem like people were buying that many games. And then GMT started, and then the, the Internet sort of, sort of stepped in there and made – got all these people who were sort of playing solitaire and, and whatever, sort of got people together. And I think the hobby kind of got, in a way, saved by that. I'm not sure. Uh, people, you know, people were moving more towards the thought, you know, oh, computer games are going to do what uh, what board games used to do. But but it, it didn't really work out that way. Um, okay. But I, so that's that's basically what I, how I'd like to go and just say, hey, Mark, how did you, because the way he, the way Soren does with all his uh, things is that uh, he, you know, he says, what, you know, how did you start? What, what was your first game that you remember? And then, you know, how did you get in the hobby? And then, and then just talk about, hey, they'll, they'll, we'll talk about the, you know, the SPI period, the Victory Games period, then on, and just kind of, and we'll talk about your, your, you know, any games that you particularly want. I mean, I have a whole list of games that we could talk about, but anything that you think is notable, and I certainly have questions about stuff. But, uh, and then we'll just continue. It'll be just like a chronological walk through the uh, career of Mark Herman. So I guess a great way to start would be, what's the first game you remember? Are we now we're talking about like when I was twelve, kind of. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay. Yeah. So um, when I was a, I was very young. The first game that I remember playing and actually trying to play a lot was uh, chess. Uh, uh, my cousin, when I was, uh, I guess I was eight. I mean, I could have been seven, seven or eight years old. Uh, a cousin of mine taught me how to play chess. Um, and so really for the first, uh, let's say, number of years of my life, that was the game that I played. You know, I was a, ch- you know, and also what's also interesting when you're, a, you're not a gamer when you're a chess player. You're a chess player or you're a gamer or both, but mm-hmm. you know, chess players are chess players. You know, they could, there are people who never play another game in their life other than chess, right. uh, which would have been true for a lot of people I knew at that time. Mm-hmm. And then when I got to 12 years old, uh, I was in a store and I saw an Avalon Hill game called The Battle of the Bulge. It was, um, uh, it, it was from a series they did, you know, there was three of them, I think. It was Battle of the Bulge, Midway, and, and maybe Africa Corps. I can't remember. It might have been Africa Corps. But anyway, they had a, I saw this game, and I bought it for, I remember to this day, four ninety five. Hmm. I, I had to, I, I got my uh, my younger brother, David, to um, uh, lend me, like, I think he had like a dollar fifty. I was short, you know, and he had a couple of bucks. And so, you know, we, we threw it on the game. And so he, when we got it home, he was expecting to see tanks and soldiers. And, and then he, we see these, you know, cardboard cannons with numbers on it because we didn't know what was in the box. Right. It had that cool cover of the guys crawling through the snow, whatever. Uh-huh. And uh, well, That's bulge, yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, uh, he, he was very disappointed. I had to buy him out pretty quick. I had to find money to buy him out. Hmm. Then I started playing. I started learning. I learned how to the game. It's the, I think the most important thing I learned from the Battle of the Bulge rules. What the word "inclusive" means. I had no idea what that word meant. I uh-huh. remember looking it up and going, "What is this inclusive thing?" <laughs> I had to go look it up. So I learned something right off the bat. And um, you know, I learned how to play it. And and then I taught my uh, a very close friend, who's still a close gaming friend, Gary Gonzalez. I showed him how to play the game. And 
and there was two copies of the game at that store. So they were, the other copy immediately got bought out by my friends. You know, some one of my friends ended up buying the other copy. Mm-hmm. And then the it was like three or four of us. We played Battle of the Bulge as our only game for I mean a, a couple at least a year. You know, mm-hmm. so I, I that game's probably been played by me. You know, well over a hundred times. You know, I, if you look at the scorecard, like you know, we mark one pencil along through, and then we use two pen. You know, yep. the scorecard is absolutely black because we played it that many times. Uh, we and they didn't have Xerox machines uh, readily available in those days. Yeah, well, you're talking the '60s now, right? Uh, yeah, sure. I, I'm 12. It's 1954, so this is like 1966, mm-hmm. right? Okay. Yeah, that, that that math works, right? Yep. So it's like 1966. So 66 to 67, we're playing Battle of the Bulge. And then we found out that there was this store, and when I say that it was like a, it was a kid store that mostly sold like you know uh, strollers and you know you know beds for babies that kind of thing. Yeah. And it was rumored that they had a collection of this company called Avalon Hill Games there. So I mean, getting here was like literally you know trudging through the snow, forty miles and barefoot kind of thing. Uh-huh. You know, we had to take multiple buses, but we got to the store and they had, and then we that's when we started. We got Africa Corps, we got Luftwaffe there, Panzer Blitz, you know, all the Avalon Hill. Sure. Classics uh, were purchased through this long, arduous process over, you know, like a year because we couldn't get the, we didn't never had enough money to buy more than a game mm-hmm. if we saved up. And and like I said, getting there was a was a chore because it was pretty far away, and you know, nobody's mother was driving, you know, doing carpools or anything in those days. Mm-hmm. So we did this on our own, and then we, we started playing games. And so, um, and in this period, I got so fascinated, I designed my first game which is uh, the Battle of Balaclava, which I was fascinated by the Charge of the Light Brigade. Uh-huh. So I did this sort of, you know, there was, you know, the various games had a couple of extra, like, blank counters. Mm-hmm. So amongst all, you know, amongst the Avalon Hill, that, that light, remember that light blue, light pink shade counters? Oh, yeah. Those yeah. Days? So I was able to amass enough extra counters that I could draw on them, and I made a map, and, you know, I had this game that I, on the Battle of Balaclava, which is during the Crimean War. Mm-hmm. And um, that was really the first game I ever did. And then, of course, then, you know, life continued and I discovered girls and all that kind of stuff. So maybe, maybe I gained a little less. And um, when I got into college, I was still gaming and I went to the first Origins and uh, I talked to the guys at the SPI booth at the Origins. That's uh, Simulations Publications Incorporated, the outfit run by Jim Dunnigan and Redmond Simonson. And uh, they gave me sort of a, a primer. They said, look, you know, you show up on Friday nights and play test the games. Maybe you write an article for Moves Magazine, which I did, and, you know, start hanging around. We get to know you. So I so I would, you know, intermittently come out from Stony Brook, where I went to undergraduate, mm-hmm. come back into the city on Friday nights. I had a car and drive in, and I'd play games, and I started, you know, helping people. You know, I was I was getting the kind of, you know, feedback. You know, I, in fact, I even would say, somebody said, what do you mean? I said, let me write, you got a typewriter, I would write the rule out. For, so I was, re, like, rewriting small rules for some of the games and playtesting. Mm-hmm. So you're developing, uh, really. Well, you know, mm-hmm. sitting down uh, and typing out two rules, you know, section 6.71 and 6.72 for somebody is not developing, but I was giving, you know, what I would call concrete playtest feedback, you okay. know, mm-hmm. I would call that development. Uh, and then when I got out of college... I was working as I was a, I worked for a company called Bartlett Trees. I was, you know, in pruning trees, you know, climbing tree, you know, you put the hooks on, you climb the tree, yeah. you cut the limbs, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. And, uh, I, I called, I, I wasn't going to do that rest of my life. Uh, <laughs> but at least I was making, well, my, my first thing when I got out of college and was very important to me was that I pay my own bills. So pretty much from the moment I got out of college, I was, you know, paying my, paying my way in the world, uh, which I was very big on. And so, you know, 
big a big kid like I worked in the factories and you know um, warehouses not factories but warehouses you know so I was a big kid and I could move stuff around and so I could get you know hired as a big schlepper you know you mm-hmm. know big kid go move things I said okay I'll do that and I got paid and uh, I I called up SPI and it just so happened that the uh, the guy in who was their receptionist a guy named uh, Phil Cousin who eventually went to become a fairly high level official in the United States State Department so mm-hmm. you know we'll get you know a lot of different pairs out of SPI yeah. And so Phil had was going back to high school, actually. So that's why he was quitting. Uh-huh. And they needed a new receptionist starting on September 1st, 1976. Uh-huh. And so I got the job, and I started as a receptionist for a game company. And that's kind of where I began my, you know, and you know, and I can go on from there unless you want me to keep going. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm, so I'm just fascinated by the, by the idea that you, you sort of in college, you just hung around SPI, and you just, uh, were, were you hanging out there with the. With the idea that you were going to eventually work there, did you, I mean, did you want to do game development and game design as a as a career? Did uh, uh, did this just kind of were you were you happy to, at some to some degree to just play test and hang out with the guys and play games? I, I guess the, the the answer is you know I, I wish I could describe sort of this you know brilliant you know pre planning of my life thing. I looked at it as a possible. My mother wanted to be a wanted to be the be, be the lawyer of the three the three boys is my <laughs> myself and my two brothers. My youngest brother did, she got the doctor out of my youngest brother. Uh-huh. Uh, I was supposed to be the lawyer. You know, we we all had to follow this. My mother's you know view of you know what we had to do so she'd have launched us. And so the whole game design thing was not you know I never talked to her about it, but I uh-huh. I, I didn't think that was going to go over big. But uh, I decided that. Um, you know, I got the job, and, and I didn't go to law school, and I ended up doing that. So I guess it worked out fine for me. But it was sort of always like a in the back of my mind that maybe this could work. But the fact that it did work is really the surprise, not that I was trying to be a game designer. I wanted to be a game designer, but I just didn't know that that was even going to be a, a possibility, really. So tell me a little bit about, you know, you were um, what it was like at, at, at that uh, you know, at SPI in the you know mid '70s, because I was looking on Board Game Geek, and there were some pictures. There's a picture of um, of, of the late uh, John Young and, and Al Nofi and some people. And um, it, it, I mean, it looks like you guys are like in Che Guevara's hideout or something like that. I mean, it's like you got all these people with like these big beards, and they're smoking cigarettes, and there's like just in these these like looks like card tables out and people are just all over them with games and it, and it really looks i mean it's wild it's like this you know it's like guerrilla war gaming what what was that what was that place like okay so i'm gonna when you start with the che Guevara things i'm gonna keep with that yeah that board just for good so imagine you know that you know you're, you've got fidel uh dunnigan and uh-huh. you've got you know che simonson uh-huh. uh, running the uh the revolution, uh-huh. and so the pictures that you saw are from the before they had they were in power, like they were like in the jungles, and that's so that was the um, earlier address. So when uh-huh. I came into the company, because like that's like what you're t- describing is like the early seventies. I came in in seventy six. Okay. So at that point, they had already taken over the government, so they actually yeah. had an office. Okay. They're not in the basement of somebody's uh, apartment building or something. Right. Okay. So I'm a little bit later than those those pictures show. John Young, I met John Young one time. Uh, he had already he had already moved on. Um, he came by SPI when I was there early on in like my first year at SPI, he came by and they, they, they played car. It was, there was a Friday nights had a couple of components, but one of the components was the designers, Jim Dunning and a lot of guys, they all played poker. Hmm. Uh, so they, and it was a room, right. I'm not going to describe the whole layout, but right, right. 
room up by the front that was like off to the side. And that's where everybody played. That was the card room. Mm-hmm. And so John Young came in once and played cards with Dunnigan and Simonson and, you know, I read Hardy and all those guys. Uh, I, I love playing poker, but on my salary, I couldn't afford to do anything but, you know, pull four of a kind to, to survive the night, you know, right. so I, I didn't have the money to play. Uh-huh. Uh, so I didn't play cards with those guys only for that, but I did meet John Young one time. And I think sadly he, he died very soon thereafter because he died at the age of 30, I think, or mm. 31. Uh, he was unfortunately, um, you know, he, he was ill and he died very, very young. So I think I, I, when I saw him, I think he had passed, he passed away with like within six or eight months after I first met him. So oh, he, gosh. I didn't really know him. Yeah. Alan Hoping, thank God, is fine. And mm-hmm. Jim had lunch with Jim Dunnigan recently. He's doing great. Great. That's why I see these guys all the time. So, but the way SPI was to your question mm-hmm. was, uh, it was, um, on 23rd street and it was, uh, you know, it was, a, it was a total operation, right? So we had like a back room where all the shipping, you know, all the game parts and things would show up and shipping was in the back. And then there was this long hallway. And I think the mo- the way that I would describe the, the, the company, because the rest of it, you know, you had the counting and all that other stuff running around. But Dunnigan's office was at one end of like literally a, um, I mean, it was about a 200 foot, you know, two, three, you know, about 45, 50 yard hallway, right? Mm-hmm. Ran, and at the very end of it, was one end was Jim Dunning and the other end was si- Reverend Simonson, and that's where the art department was. Okay. And then along the side were these offices that had windows that looked at on 23rd Street, and that's where R and D and accounting uh, and marketing was. Mm-hmm. You know, so that's where so everybody was anybody who I spent all my time with was right along that hallway. So literally, we people were, and then the playtest rooms were across the hall and the interior where there was no windows. Okay. And so the place was just a beehive of. People talking to each other, people typing rules, people walking into playtest rooms and setting up games, people playing games. You know, it was just a real, you know, it was just, a, it, was, it was really very ama- amazing place. Sounds like Nirvana. It was pretty close. Yeah, I got to tell you. <laughs> I, I'm trying not to make it. I'm, I'm trying to remember that I'm 61 in a couple of days, and I want to make sure I'm not a, an old man looking through the fog of history and seeing, you know, what was the promised land. But it right. was good. Yeah. Uh, it didn't pay well, but it was, it was a very... Um, uh, interesting place to work in a good way, you uh-huh. know, fascinating place to work. And a lot of games got turned. I turned out in two and a half years, I think, you know, I've done now about 60 plus games, but in the first two and a half years, I think I did like 18, 18 games. Now, so how did you get to doing games? So, I mean, you're, so you're a receptionist, you're sitting there and you're, you're, uh, I, I assume you moved out of that position at, at some point fairly quickly yeah. or how did so, you, how did you get making games then? So I'll tell you, um, I'll tell you uh, two quick stories about being a receptionist and then how I got yeah, off. Yeah, sure. So I, I'm up there, and they had, you know, this is the old days, right? So I had this telephone, and phone rings. I go, hello, SPI, and, you know, I direct their calls. But the way the calls got picked up, it was an intercom system. So you know, let's say you called up and you wanted to talk to uh, Jim Dunnigan, right? So I would hit the, the little button, and i go, Jim Dunnigan, call on two. Jim <laughs> Dunnigan, call on two. And I would, you know, there was a speaker system throughout the place, and right. everybody would hear who the phone call was for. Um and of course, I'm doing this, and then the guy named uh, Kevin Zucker, right? Uh, another, yeah, you know, oh yeah, minor. I know Kevin Zucker. And uh, so Kevin comes walking up. I didn't know him very well at that point, but I, he comes walking up, and he's very nice, you know. He goes, "Hey, how you doing? First day, having a good time, that kind of thing." And then yeah. he goes, "He goes, you need to look at SPI like an elaborate, insane asylum. And if you speak too loud into the intercom, you disturb the inmates." <laughs> <laughs> so obviously, I then you know modulated my tone on the intercom, and then. A little later on, Jim Dunnigan came up, and Jim wanted me to do something for him. He goes, but before I, went, I give you this task, I want you to understand something that's very important to me. I go, what's that? He goes, he goes, 
it is not an accident that the word dead is in the word deadline. <laughs> so okay. Want, this is what I want done. I want it done right. And I want it in two hours kind of thing. I uh-huh. said, sure. And we got along great. One thing about Jim Dunnigan, by the way, is he, he's brilliant. He can talk on any topic that I'm aware of on a stream of consciousness like nobody I've ever met in my entire life. And I've met a lot of people since then. Mm-hmm. And and he's a very straight shooter. So, you know, if you, you know, it, Jim is very straight. This is what I want. And if there's any deviation from you know, the expect, his expectations or the expectations of, you know, what he expects people to do while they're there at the company, um, you're going to hear about it, like, immediately. You know, mm-hmm. there won't be any, like, you know, he's not a passive-aggressive kind of guy, right? right. He's going to come right at you and go, okay, here's what's going wrong. You need to fix this immediately. And you, and, and, and and sometimes, you know, he literally walk up to you and said, look, I, I understand you've been trying, uh, but you're fired. You know, it was <laughs> that kind of conversation. Right. Now, I had a conversation with Jim. I, I, I was actually, uh, Jim and I got along famously, and I, Developed a lot of a bunch of games for him. Like the next war was a big project I did with him, and um, you know, so it was a really. And Redmond was also a creative genius, and 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 my schedule just because I remember I'm very young at this point. I'm not right. single, you know, which I'm not now. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, I, my schedule was like noon to midnight. I worked twelve hours a day, but I was working you know to midnight every day. And mm-hmm. so Redmond was a kind of a night owl, and he he kind of kind of lived in the office. He had an apartment, but. I would say that during the work week, he was—he probably was there, you know, four out of five nights during the work week, and he'd sleep at his apartment on weekends. Because so he had a bed in the uh, his office, you know. He was in wow, the Redmond Simonson sleeping in the SPI offices. Oh, oh yeah, yeah, and you know, absolutely. He, uh, I, w- I would say that he spent more than half his time uh, in the office rather than like you know, he didn't do a nine to five commute. Like he he would show up on Monday and he'd leave on you know maybe Friday night. He'd leave. Okay. Uh, maybe sometimes Saturday morning. I, mean, I don't. Even, I didn't follow him around that much, but he was always there. So when I was working late, and if I had, and he was a great guy to bounce ideas off. Like you know, he was, you know, because I was always. I, what I learned from him was how to try to take some ideas and make. If you it's sometimes integrating graphics can sometimes solve a lot of complicated problems mm-hmm. without a lot of rules. Yeah. You know, sometimes using the right color or the right symbology or just how you do the terrain, you can just get rid of a whole. So. I learned a lot, so I often would go to him, and we'd sit down and you know sit down over a problem. Uh, uh, here's an example of, uh, of you know how he and I would work together. You know, this would be like you know, remember this is like a midnight, right? You know, mm-hmm. on a weekday, so that's normal for us. He right. and, I. and I was doing this game called um, Mech War Two, right? And which is a modern for those who don't know it, it's like a modern armor game. Uh, platoons, you know, fighting the next, you know, fighting in the Soviets versus right. modern uh, being 1970s. Well, but it was, right. it was right. at the time current. It was a know? future war, yeah, contemporary. It's contemporary, contemporary army. It's like this is what could happen, like tomorrow if the war goes off, kind of thing. Right. And I had done earlier done my first published game was a game called um, October War. Actually, I'm technically the developer, but Irad Hardy, Irad Hardy, uh, another amazing guy, uh, turned that over to me, um, you know, in, during the development. Anyway, so the October War came out, and we used like a solution for showing that tanks. When you know when a tank kind of crawls up to the top of a hill and just puts the gun over, it's called defilade. Yep. And in the map in October War, there are these spaces that if you get into this location, you get this great benefit for you know you know shooting it out with the uh, the the opponent. Uh, but the problem with that is is that then the map is determining how the battles always happen, right? Because mm-hmm. you're always going to fight over these you know key terrain features, or always where the battle is. And I wanted something that was a little bit more. Uh, natural, and Revan and I kicked it around for a while, and we came up with this idea that, uh, without getting into a lot of detail, that says said that you know 
any any piece of ground probably has a place from some direction that you could get the you know you could maneuver the tank into in a good position. Mm-hmm. And the more open the terrain, the harder it would be to find it. So you spent so you'd use movement time to find the location, and then you could go into depth a lot anywhere, but you'd have to orient. So this way, that way, the map became totally open to new tactics and strategies, not just tied to these hex sides. Uh-huh. And that came out of like a two-hour conversation at midnight. Hmm. But that solved this, you know, gra- so now we didn't need a graphic to do what we could easily do with a rule, and sometimes it was, a, you know, we didn't need a rule because we did it with a graphic. So I did a lot of that with Redmond, you know, as I was growing up in the business. So I should just add for the for listeners, some listeners are not going to, I mean, to a lot of people, Redmond Simonson is just, everybody knows who he is, but, I mean, Redmond Simonson, who unfortunately also passed away a number of years ago, um, is, uh, I guess, the, the grandfather, father, or godfather, whatever you want, whatever paternal figure you want to use for uh, wargaming sort of not just graphics, but art design, graphic design, kind of uh, the the idea that in this in this new hobby that was developing, that you could really use this visual depiction uh, in, a, in a very functional but very attractive way. I, would, I think. Yeah, I mean, I, the way I used to think of it, first it was Gutenberg, and then it was Redmond. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, so. But but it is true that the what people call the classic hex encounter game, you know, they, that's I think now what they, you know, there's they they, they people are very big on categorizing games, and yes. some, sometimes on some of the boards, these enormous fights, food fights, break out over definitions, which I find to be hilarious. But right. stay out of those. But but for the most part, these are the sort of that they call the classic Avalon Hill game look, or they call it the classic, you know, hex encounter look. Mm-hmm. Revan invented, uh, you know, probably at least half of what we know today is was created by Redman. Mm-hmm. So, so you're so you're sitting around with. So, are you doing these, having these conversations with Roman? How did you get to, to design October War? I mean, I assume that you're. Oh, you're so this goes back yeah, to the story. Oh, yeah. sorry. So I'm on the reception desk, and so SPI had done a, a game called Firefight for the U.S. Army. So for, for and this was like a twenty five thousand dollar contract mm-hmm. to do a game for training. Okay. Uh, and so the U.S. Army. Uh, just be, and this game had come out just before I got to SPI, so that game is already on the market, or it just come out. Literally, the, the game is like brand new when I get to SPI. Mm-hmm. And the U.S. Army had given um, SPI um, their, um, you know, their training manuals, all of them. Mm-hmm. And the training manuals for the U.S. Army in 1976. I'm six foot one, and they were taller than me by, you know, maybe a foot. Mm-hmm. And I'm a voracious reader, and you know, I have very good reading comprehension. So. I'm on the desk, and then literally in a one-month period, I read every single manual in the U.S. Army, hmm. seven feet of uh, documents, uh-huh. and I retained it. And so all of a sudden, I knew, and people were watching, and of course, you know, I'm, people saw me doing this. You know, I'm sitting at the front desk. I had nothing, right. you know, you know I mean, and it was also a retail outlet. So if anybody came through the door that wasn't one of us, right, they were looking for games. And so my, one of the reasons why I got the job was I, I, I knew all the games, so my thing was to sell them games. But this wasn't... You know, on a given week, I might see, um, not counting Friday nights, because Friday night, of course, all the playtesters came, and then they would buy games. So that was a more active uh, evening. Uh-huh. But if it wasn't Friday night, I might see, um, minus Friday night, I'd probably see maybe a dozen to two dozen people a week. You know, obviously, okay. you Christmas or something, it'd be more. But, you know, it was, it was quiet. You know, it's mm-hmm. not ain't a lot going on. The phone doesn't ring all the time. And so people would give me little, you know, pickup assignments, you know, Xerox this or trace this map for me or whatever. So I was doing, and that's how I got to work, started working with Richard Berg on the Conquerors was a game that I started helping him with mm-hmm. uh, at that time. Cause I might was actually in ancient history. And, uh, and then uh, people saw me doing this. So I read Hardy comes up and what happened was, so you, if you talk about trends in the hobby, so, you know, there was the, 
we were known for Strategy and Tactics magazine, which is still being published by Decision Games, mm-hmm. was the big concept was every it came out every other month, so six issues a year, and each issue came with a full game, rules, pieces, and a, and a map, right? You know, right. we all saw this in a hobby, but this was a big deal in those days because that, that was a new concept mm-hmm. uh, of, the, you know, the game and the magazine thing. Sure. Plus there was board games. And so what happened was the, uh, the magazine was on a very, very strict schedule because it had to go on. You know, we were nobody in the world, and we were using what they called a web press. And so we had this two-hour window every two months where they would put S&T magazine on – the press and you know these things run these were the really big fast presses like the newspapers use yep and so uh, the magazines use so we had to be on the press for those two hours or we lost our, our slot mm-hmm. and, and and the penalties we couldn't afford it right so right. it had to be on time and what had happened was spi started doing these what they call the monster game a monster game is one that has more than one map you could have three or four maps mm-hmm. and it has doesn't have like 100 pieces it could have like 2,000 pieces so these are what they call the monster games yep and a guy um, named Jay Nelson, another uh, old friend, uh, was working on this game called Highway to the Reich, and he was way behind schedule, and he was responsible for doing a bunch of strategy and tactics magazines. And so his falling behind said that they had to get somebody else in that slot to make sure this stuff showed up on – the magazine game showed up on time. And yep. So I got – so I read Hardy, came rolling up to the front desk. He was the head of R&D, very nice guy, uh, went to Harvard. You know, these are all oh, – everybody in SPI was like a brainy – you know. yeah. Everybody was really smart, <laughs> and 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 uh, it was it was an interesting crowd. And he gives me this game, October War, and so that's how I got the game. And pretty much after thirty days on the front desk, and, I, and then all of a sudden I had three games to do. You know, then Dunnigan gave me a game, and you know, so I'm getting all these uh, games to design and develop. Uh, then uh, they got somebody else to do the front desk, and I got an office, and I was a designer from then on. And so thirty days on the front desk as a receptionist, and then I was a designer at SPI. Wow. So uh, that was, I mean, but I, I assume you were staying there till uh, till midnight. Uh, but I assume that nobody's calling you after five or five p.m. Right? So I yeah, mean, you're but, probably when you yeah. were when you were when you were on the desk, you were probably doing other stuff uh, as well, right? Oh yeah. In fact, uh, you know, I happen to be very very good with numbers, and I learned early on that. You know, once one of the departments found that you could do some grunge work for them. Mm-hmm. So the accounting department came with these ledgers. They wanted, you know, some, you know, manip- mathematical manipulation done. You're like adding them. Yeah. Okay. And so I have to admit that I did something really bad and I admit to it freely. I, I made mistakes on purpose. Mm-hmm. And then um, the lovely woman who ran accounting named Bridget, uh, Irish girl, actually, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, real Irish girl, like Irish Irish mm-hmm. girl. Mm-hmm. And then she goes, ah, oh, Mark. Yeah, you're a, you're a sweet lad, but you're obviously not good enough for the accounting department. So I, get, I luckily got out of that job. <laughs> yeah, that's funny. <laughs> she was a sweet lady, but I yeah. didn't make mistakes on purpose, so I wouldn't be in the accounting. Yeah. So I would get because if I was doing that, I wouldn't get more interesting stuff to do. Right? Yeah, you had no interest in that. So so you got your your office and you started designing games. And uh, what, how how did that go? What what did you did were you able to just sort of freeform you know brainstorm ideas and say okay I'm going to design a game about you know. Oh, no, yeah, so that's not, so SPI, the magazine was, so the magazine was like the centerpiece of how a lot of activity, and Jim Dunnigan uh, was a quant, you know, statistician analyst from day one, which is what he's made his career out of, you know, in Wall Street since he left SPI, Mm -hmm. has been quite successful at it, Mm -hmm. and so there was this thing called the feedback card, so, you know, you would would be a subscriber, and it was 36,000 subscribers in those days, so you would get your magazine, and in it would be a, you know, a, a perfect card with, you know, places the bright stuff on and then mail it back to uh, SPI. And 
in the back of the magazine, it was uh, game uh, proposals. You know, like, would you like to see a game on and, you know, all the famous games that, that got published? And one of your things, you, so if you wanted to work on a game of your own choosing, you would write up these game proposals uh, and you'd, they'd go in the magazine and then people would vote on them. And mm -hmm. basically, if your game got the requisite number of, you know, votes, you know, it got showed, you know, fan appeal, then you would get to do your own design. If you're, none of your games got, um, feedback that way then you would be uh, developing somebody else's games right. or it's at some point you, you know you might you know run out of work you know so there was a little bit of you know you want and of course everybody wants to design their own game so i started feedbacking this that and the other thing while i was working on other games for uh, other people and you know that's so that's how i got to work on the ones i wanted to work on uh but otherwise i was you know i was a good developer and so i used to get assignments from and dunnigan like working with me so i worked with dunnigan a bunch uh mostly so that I mean that's a dangerous way to 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 decide what you're going to work on. Obviously, I mean that that SPI feedback card is kind of infamous. Um, I mean you know all the obviously all the problems with that. I mean you have a, how how many how of thirty six thousand subscribers? How many people actually sent in that feedback card? Oh, you'd be. I mean, I, I can. You know, I could. What I, I promise to do is I'll see Jim Dunnigan at some point. He'll remember. You know, mm -hmm. I, he probably still has the files and, <laughs> and could tell us by you know by month what the numbers were. I swear to God, that's not. That's not an exaggeration. Mm -hmm. I would say that we would get at least a thousand to two thousand mm -hmm. per issue, okay. which was the sample. So he wouldn't remember what the sample size was, but it was there was a standard. There was a pretty decent uh, sample size, and uh, and of course, by the way, you know, just one other thing I learned from Jim Dunnigan is, you know, one of the nice things about being the boss is since he was in charge. Out of the six issues, one was what they used to call editor's choice, which didn't require feedback. And guess who got to decide which one that was? Right. Sure. So <laughs> Good Jim. yeah. So Jim. So Jim. Jim got to pick, you know, some topic he wanted to do, and it would be quote unquote the editor's choice. And I will tell you that some of the best games, some great games, came out that way. Mm -hmm. uh, but you know, the public only knows, you know, they want another one of what they already like, and sometimes right. you want to break new ground. You got to just sort of say, hey, check it out, guys. You know, sure. Yeah. Well, no, he's very clearly was a very talented game designer. So how how um, I mean, there must have been a lot of. Uh, I mean, you just talked about Kevin Zucker. I mean, I know Kevin uh, went to uh, Avalon Hill. I mean, he had his own company, OSG, and there, there must have been a lot of flux of people coming in and out. Or was it was it a stable kind of stable place? I assume the the pay didn't uh, didn't yeah. keep people there for very long. So I was there from. The I was there twice. Uh, the first time was two and a half years. Was probably not an unusual run there. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I started out, I mean, literally, I can tell you to this day, I, I, I was getting minimum wage, which was $5 an hour. Mm -hmm. And you know, if you work 40 hours, you log in 40 hours a week, cause they won't pay you from, they don't, they didn't pay overtime for mm -hmm. designers. Right. So you're only going to get, so I got, uh, you know, I got a hundred dollars and, um, and then minus taxes, I got, I took home 79, 78 or something like that a week, a week. Wait, wait, four, $5 an hour. That's two, you got $200. Uh, no, I, I, oh, it was two fifty then. I mean, I, it was forty times. Whatever it was, it was hundred dollars a week is what I was getting paid. Okay. So, yeah, you're right. I that that math doesn't work. Good for you, but it was half of that. Then the minimum wage was two fifty then. Okay. So you so, okay? So you get yeah, it probably was because I mean I I was I was when I was in high school I was making I think less than five dollars an hour minimum wage and and uh, that was after you. So yeah, so okay, two fifty. So you're getting a so you're you're bringing home about seventy under eighty bucks a week. Just under eighty dollars a week is what I was uh, bringing home, and and uh, and uh, other than staying home for like I guess two months living at my parents' house, you know, because I uh, I was basically paying a rent, eating, and um, working on that amount of money for a while. Mm -hmm. So I learned I also learned how to uh, how to scrimp, right, uh, and hustle. 
the way, actually the way I made most of my money at SPI was, although I got a salary, obviously, the um, there were these game conventions, right? And one of the, the the nice little entrepreneurial things I could do, which I did pretty much almost every, you know, at least two, at least one weekend a month, probably two weekends a month, I would go to game conventions and sell SPI games. Hmm. And the deal was is that SPI wanted a present, so they would pay for whatever you know whatever the booth or the entrance fee for a you know the uh, you know, a retailer would be SPI would pay that at funds. You, you know, the two hundred dollars or three hundred dollars, whatever it was, for the table. Uh-huh. The company would pay. They would give you the games on consignment. So let's say you took, you know, two thousand dollars worth of games. The, the company was going to get back a thousand dollars for the two thousand dollars worth of games, and whatever you sold and returned, you know, you get back what you didn't sell. Um, you got to keep, but you had to pay all your own expenses. So if you used a truck to move the games there, you had to pay for the truck. If right. you you stayed in a hotel, you know, so all. So I got very good at um, uh, a couple of guys who were also doing it. So I, I used to lead a crew of about two or three people every, um, you know, every several times a month to some game, local game convention in the New York area, sometimes further away. And um, I never lost money. I, I always made, let's say, after all expenses, I might make an extra uh, $100, which mm-hmm. was basically a week's salary right. and a weekend. So that's how I actually got over the, you know, the poverty line so I could eat. Mm. Was, so I, I worked a lot, but I was it was a great time. You got to go to game conventions, play games. But obviously, you're selling games during the day, but you're there, and you know it's, it's you know you're single. It's a lifestyle, right? And so that's but that's only two and a half years. You said now, yeah. And two, so what ended up happening is I got to the point after two and a half years. Now there's a there's this girl that I knew um, who's actually just a couple of rooms away right now. <laughs> uh, you know. Things were, you know, good things are happening, right. and um, I needed to make more money. And I had, a, I had a very straight up conversation. You know, Jim Dunnigan, as I told you, is a straight shooting kind of guy. I said, "Look, I need to make more money." He said, um, "You know," he, he explained to me the economics of publishing, which was the answer was no, right. <laughs> but it was a, you know, but it was a, it was an explanation with real uh, content to it. And as it happened, I had just done this game called The Next, where you and I have talked about even playing uh, you and I at some point. Uh, and Next War got me noticed by a bunch of people in Washington in the defense sector. Mm-hmm. And so this one guy named uh, Phil Carber had said to me, you know, I knew him. And I so I said, I need to make more money. So I called this guy up. I said, hey, you had mentioned to me that you were looking for, you know, like more of this kind of stuff. Is there any opportunities down there? And so they, you know, they flew me down, which was, you know, they paid me to come down there. I interviewed and they gave me the job. And so I then uh, then I, I proposed to my wife. Uh, and um, I moved to uh, Washington D.C. and started my life as a defense consultant uh, mm-hmm. at uh, a place called uh, BDM Corporation, which stood for Braddock Dunn and McDonald's Corporation, which doesn't exist anymore. They were eventually they went through several evolutions, but they were eventually bought by TRW Corporation. Okay. And so that was that the end of designing for that period of time? I mean, uh, for for a commercial, I mean, obviously you're yeah, you're a defense yeah. consultant, so you're doing stuff for for them. Yeah, I, I assume. wasn't doing any. Um, I'm trying to think if I did any. Oh no, I I did do one game in that period. I, I don't think it ever got published. I did a game called uh, On the Battle of New Market, uh, hmm. with a follow-on to uh, Stonewall. Okay. And I had fed back that it come back positive, and they and they were willing to let me do it. And you know they would have paid me you know ten bucks to do it, but I did this game on New Market. Um, and so uh, that was the only game I did. They would have paid period. you ten bucks. Well, I, I'm being I'm being a little bit <laughs> okay. Really, if I did the the the, the, the you know, there's no royalty on it because it was going to go in uh you know go in the magazine. Right. So I mean, literally, they would have paid me a hundred dollars for yeah, it. Or something. Okay. It, which, by the way, I, I want to be clear that this is 1979. Sure. And, 
and a hundred bucks was like, Hey, that's a, you know, you know, Carol and I are going away for the weekend, you know, right. that's we're right. gonna party for a hundred free bucks like that. That would have been a party. Right. So, uh, yeah. So, uh, but it would have been something like that. It would have been a thousand even, I guarantee you that mm-hmm. it would have been a hundred bucks or so, right. but yeah, you're designing games, but, uh, then I was at BDM for a while. And then what happened was SPI following onto the firefight thing where they got a government contract. They got a contract to do a basically a World War III game for a for the Office of Secretary of Defense, some part of it that I ended up working for, you know, for many years. Oh, okay. And they got this contract, and they didn't know what you know. They didn't have anybody who was they were they, they were fumbling it badly. They were running out of money, and they were in trouble. And so one day I get I'm down at Washington, and I have to say at this point I'm kind of like not loving being a defense consultant at this point in my life. So I'm kind of like thinking I was already kind of like what else can I do with my life. And but it paid well uh, by the by the standards of, of what my standards were in those days. Right. And Brad Hessel comes down to Washington D.C. says, "Can I have lunch? I'm going to be in D.C. You want to have lunch?" I said, "Sure." Well, who's, sorry, Brad Hessel is. Yeah, Brad Hessel was now was another was a, a designer. He did um, a bunch of games at SPI. Um, he did one of the Guderian games. Um, uh, you know, he, he was a designer, but okay. he become the head of R and D. So okay. Brad Hessel. It took over I read Hardy's job. I mean, I know these are names that nobody knows. Or That's anything. fine. Yeah, yeah. So okay, so he's, so he's head of R and D at SPI. Okay, he comes down. He comes down to see me, and they offer me a job to come back to New York and to um, run this government division, and but more importantly, get them out of the hole on this game. So, right. you know, my wife, who was you know is a New Yorker, and you know one of my my things was I'll get you back to New York. So I think I said to her, "Hey, I was offered a job at SPI. I think she was, had already packed her bag, and was out the door before I could even get the." <laughs> Was out of my mouth. Okay. So we went to New York, and I worked for you know going back to SPI, and we, we successfully delivered this uh, really cool World War III game. You know, this is back in the height of the Cold War. Remember, this is nineteen. Um, this would be nineteen eighty one. Okay. Yeah. So this is nineteen eighty one. So we're in the height of the Cold War, and uh, so this game goes in, and uh, but at this point, SPI, the only part of the SPI that was making money was this government division that I was running. You know, okay. but but the rest of the company was hemorrhaging badly. So when you go back to the periods of the game business. Um, so back in the day when I was there, you know, the games were carried in the retail stores very much, you know, the magazine, everything we, so if you did a, a $30, a $20 game, those days that, that would have been too much, but like a $20 game, the company got $20, right? Mm-hmm. And then they pay their bills. When you go to retail, you're getting close to like a 30, 33% of the value. So if you're, you're doing a $21 game, you're getting $7. You're not getting, the other 14 is going to, you know, discounts and all right. this kind of stuff, right? So as it turned out, you know, they were losing money on every retail sale and making it back with volume, right? Oh. <laughs> so right. Well, the company was hemorrhaging money and the government division was making money because it's, you know, it's the nature of that work. Right. But it wasn't enough. And they they started trying to get investors to try to float the company. And at this point, by the way, when I came back, Jim Dunnigan had left. Uh, it was the, the guys were they brought back a guy named uh, Chris, Chris. Um, oh, God. You know, the guy who actually started S&T. And Brad Hessel were the three guys running the company. Redmond, uh, Chris, and uh, Brad Hessel were running the company, but they were running into trouble. And so I'm doing the government thing. And, and, and also, we moved our spaces around the corner to uh, Park Avenue South and around 20th Street. Okay. And so I'm working there. And I did a Conan game, by the way, which is uh, I have. There's one copy of this Conan game, which I have the only copy of. Uh, so I have a box with you know Arnold Schwarzenegger and the original mm-hmm. movie poster, and my name's on the box. So I have nice. that. People always ask me, do you know where that box went? He goes, yes, I have it. And they go, oh, you want to sell it to me? No. <laughs> okay. This is like, this is my, you know, it's going to my heirs. Right. They can sell it. But, um, so I did this really cool Conan game. 
And I, you know, and, I, and then I also because at this time, you know, we bombed, uh, you know, the Israelis bombed the Osirik, you know, yeah. and things around the world. So I started showing up on the news as the SPI local, you know, the New York local expert on modern stuff. So I've been, I was on a bunch of TV a bunch of times. It's kind of a, hoot, a fun period. But SPI was going down and TSR, which is the company that, you know, does Dungeons and Dragons, yeah. uh, loaned, it was a hostile takeover. We, they, they loaned SPI money, but what it really was, was they, they, you know, as soon as we, you know, forfeit, you know, we couldn't make a payment, they took over the company. Yep. And I want to say that um, I was, they, they came to me and they said, okay, here's the deal. You're going to be moving to Lake Geneva, Wisconsin, which mm-hmm. I'm a lovely place. I've been there. It's a very nice place. Yeah. But they were telling me this. You're now, you now work for TSR and you're coming. And there was this whole, like, um, I guess if you were an indentured servant in the, uh, you know, the 17th century, this mm-hmm. is how the conversation would go. You know, we're right. sending you to America, but you're really an indentured servant, you know, that kind of thing. Right. And I didn't like that. So I sat down with a bunch of the guys. I said, I'm not happy. I, I think I'm going to try to start my own company. And they all went, oh, we're in. You know, everybody, we're right. in. So I started hunting around, and I went down, and I met this guy, really nice guy named Eric Dodd, who was the owner of Avalon Hill. Yeah. And I talked to Eric, and we cut a deal that um, – we, I would start a new. So he, Eric's had a very simple retail strategy. You know, he's in stores, and he had been he had been in distribute. You remember I, when I was a kid, the Avalon Hill games I bought in that store. You know that we went to by yes. through the snow. Sure. He had figured out the distribution, the economics of distribution. You know, you know, twenty years, you know, twenty years before this. So he already knew how to do all that and not go out of business. Okay. Uh, so he had no problem with retail, which SPI never quite figured out. Uh, so. He wanted, you know, he knew that Avalon Hill games were going to get, you know, 10 feet of shelf space in a store is all he was going to get. And he wanted to start a new label so he now could have 20 feet of shelf space. Uh, so, okay. I mean, I just wanted, there was a really, and I, what I learned from Eric is a lot of basic business strategy. It's not that complicated, right? Yeah, uh-huh. More shelf space. And I'm going to start a new label. And that was Victory Games. And so in, from 1983 to 1987, but it was actually really like late 82. Anyway, it ended up being like almost five years. Mm-hmm. I, uh, the, we, we all resigned. Uh, actually I found out, I'm very proud to say I, I was a TSR employee for two days. And as soon as I found out that I was a TSR employee, I quit. Yeah. So, <laughs> so I, I got a paycheck that said from TSR. I said, I didn't know I worked for TSR for SPI. So I just, you know, I immediately resigned and we started victory games pretty much down the block from there. And, uh, you know, we had a great crew. Uh, it was myself, uh, Bob Ryer, uh, the, the game, famous game with John Butterfield, a uh, yep. well-known game designer, oh, still yeah. found, um, Eric right, Lee Smith, Eric Lee Smith, right. Uh, who another talented, uh, phenomenal designer, um, Chris Klug. And we were the original four designers of SPI, you know, of victory games, mm-hmm. you know, from SPI. uh, Chris, you know, um, Chris did the, uh, bond role-playing game system. Yep. He's like a role-playing guy. And, you know, Smith, myself and Butterfield were the, uh, you know, uh, you know the, the the traditional historical game guys, yeah. um, and we 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 launched a pretty good label for a period of time. Uh, I think at the end of the day, you know, the again it was really more about you know now you know as I get, as I get to the late eighties, and then our big success was you know forget about our biggest money maker of all time was Doctor Who's Game of Good Sex. I mean, we are you serious? I swear to God, I made that we made so much. Um, Let's say an average uh, Victory Games would sell like twenty thousand copies, which today's world, by the way, would be a phenomenal. Yes, it would. Would be a ridiculous success, and some of the bigger hits like uh, Gull Strike and um, Pacific War and American Civil War and uh, you know others would sell twenty five to thirty thousand copies. 
but Dr. Root's Game of Good Sex sold probably close to 400,000 copies. Wow. 400,000 copies. Uh, yeah. We were, we were printing money for a while. Uh, we were amazing. amazing. Yeah. And she's, a st- and, but I still, I've actually still see her. She works not too far from where I live in Manhattan and she's, she's a phenomenal lady. I had lunch with her not too long ago, uh, uh helping her with uh, some children. She wanted to talk about this children's book she was writing. Uh, but she's she's hysterical. I mean, she was just the most amazing woman ever. Well, uh, so, uh, did you talk to her like for the game, or did she have any input into that? Or is... Oh yeah, Are you kidding me, doctor? First of all, she's she's think about a four foot ten package of brilliant energy. Wow. I don't know what the sweetest. You know, like it's like my Jewish grandmother. You know, she's just hysterical. Um, and you know, and she and, and the things that come out of her mouth, if it was coming, you know, it's like. I can't believe you're saying these things, <laughs> but yeah, we, it was a trivia pursuit game, and um, it got picked up by a, a, a company called uh, Spencer Gifts. You know, I don't, I think they're still around. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were just selling that stuff like out the door. Hmm. Uh, it was a very simple game done by Michael Moore, mm-hmm. um, and it's just and, and some of the questions I, I can't do them on the air, but they're funny. You know, it's yeah. just kind of it's yeah. a couple's game. You know, it's a race game with answering trivia pursuit questions. So it's not a you know it's not, it's not brilliant game design, but right. it really did phenomenally well for us. So uh, we, we that was probably the thing that really got us. But anyway, as you get to the late '80s, my um, you know my. Uh, I'm now a father. You know, my, my daughter, uh, Lara, was born, you know, very early in Victory Games. Uh, she was born in 1983. So we had started the company. And so like six months into the company, I'm now a dad. Right. And, you know, as you're going on in life, you know, I'm trying to, you know, we want to get a house, you know, all the usual things. Sure. And um, there's only so much money you can make in the game, you know, the board game business. Because right now, uh, you know, Atari games, the computer game business is booming. And now the Atari collapse comes later. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I don't remember the year. I know they buried. I, I saw some show where they buried all of these copies of some. Yeah, the a- ET. The yes. yeah, yeah, the ET game, right. the famous ET guy, ET thing, and they actually dug them back up, like or you know, like from this hole they they you know buried them in. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, but at this point, you know, those are really eating. Uh, so between retail sales being down, and you know, this is the, what I'll call the pre Carcassonne, uh, you yes. know, con period, and the uh, PC games are are, are king. This is the board game interregnum. This is where things sort of start going, where people are. I, I remember being in college at this time, and it's harder and harder to find games on the shelves, and it's almost like that hobby is sort of dying. Correct. Exactly what was going on. And so being a guy running a game company in that situation, and and I, but I was, I was, you know, I, I, I probably myself, besides being a designer, I've always been, um, I've turned out that I'm a, I'm a pretty good businessman. I mean, that I, and I'll talk about that part of my career in a second. Sure, sure. And, I went to Eric Dot and I said, "Look, you know, it's Avalon Hill's having a tough time. You know, uh, Victory Games is having a tough time, and um, he had a computer division, and it was having a tough time. Mm-hmm. And I said to him, why 'Why don't you let me run the whole thing, and I'll make I'll make this thing make money. But I want to do the computer games is really where the future is, and I can really make that into a business. Mm-hmm. And he just wasn't interested in um, doing things differently. Okay. So at that point." I was kind of like, okay, I can't make a bunch more money uh, I, I now, and uh, I've got this kid. Oh, and by the way, my wife gets pregnant again. Mm-hmm. So now, uh, Grant, you had nothing uh, to do with that, right? You, I, you I, make it sound like it's some kind of uh, like. I, a, I like to believe that uh, <laughs> I had at least, you know, I had some participation. <laughs> yes, as I've learned, is my my <laughs> wife, you know, burden right. of everything really fell on her. Right. Uh, but I did show up for. Uh, 
for the party. Anyway, so mm-hmm. now, I, but I, but I, you know, I'm doing my. We're very Ozzy and Harriet, so I'm the one. You know, she's raising kids, and I'm sure, uh, and I, I got to get make more money. And mm-hmm. so, I, um, I had uh, even at, at Victory Games, we had what we used to. I, I figured out early on that keeping a small amount of government work, you know, for me to do that would bring an extra income. You know, this is toward the end, of, you know, the late '80s. I'm kind of going, you know, we need more money. So I'm, right. I was always on the hustle. So I went to these. Uh, a client, and they said, "Hey, we want you to do a, um, you know, a, a, so basically, you know, Gull Strike, right? You know, the, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I know for the listeners of video games, this is, but this was a game that actually made me fairly um, in the news because in 1983, I did this game called Gull Strike. For those who don't know, and it postulates a number of scenarios in the Persian Gulf, but one of them is a U.S. intervention into the Middle East, which eventually became Desert Storm, and uh, so." Um, I'll tell you a funny story about that in a second. And so that game uh, had a, a a classified government version. Okay. And so that was the contract um, that I had, and that was bringing in income that helped to float. The, you know, I had to pay rent. Mm-hmm. And pay the, I had to pay the uh, mafia-owned garbage company. And, mm-hmm. and uh, yeah. uh, I mean, I'm not kidding. I swear to God. I, uh. I once calls me up and he goes, we're raising – I won't do the accent, but he says, I'm raising your um, monthly from – $30 a month to $150 a month for garbage collection. And I was like, what? So I called up and I, and I actually, I, I don't know, I, I, I guess I was talking to Don Corleone on the phone. <laughs> okay. and I literally said, with all due respect, sir, and you know, I'm very respect. You know, I used the word respect right. 38 times right. in the first sentence because I didn't want to get killed. Right. And I said, we, we, we got no money. We're, uh, we, well, obviously you pay our bills. I mean, well, of course we'll pay, but we really can't pay. And so he kind of goes, you know, you, you seem like a nice young man. And they only raise it ten dollars. So, <laughs> and, you know, so you know, this is how you deal with things in New York. <laughs> so, but the point was is that I was bringing this extra money to try to pay these bills, and I eventually um, was offered a job in Washington to go back and being a defense consultant. And that's nineteen eighty. This is like in nineteen eighty seven, mm-hmm. and that's what I ended up doing for the next twenty seven years of my life. Yeah, and I became and I ultimately became a senior partner at Booz Allen Hamilton and mm-hmm. retired from there about 18 months ago so I could go back and being a full-time game designer. Yeah. Well, I, I just want to – we'll talk more about that. But um, uh, I was just – interestingly enough, coincidentally enough, uh, nothing to do with this interview, but I was looking through my um, my old copies of The General last night looking for something, and I came came upon uh, an extra. They, they published for the listeners Avalon Hill General, uh, the magazine of that company that uh, – been supposedly bi-monthly magazine turned out to be less than that but um had a map for the uh operation desert storm the there was a kuwait map uh that was published later to so you could uh play that so you could play gulf strike with that uh with the the extra let me give you a story behind that with my financial so i during desert storm i was actually Working in um, a part of the um, joint, chief, you know, the joint staff called the J8, and the J8 does resources and uh, like analysis. So uh-huh. I was working there, and I had done. I was working on actual. We were doing. We were wargaming the war before it happened, and so I knew about the left hook, and you know, I had all the war plans. I mean, I was working. You know, I was very classified. And, you know, we're doing all this stuff, and so that module was designed but couldn't be published. Until after the war, mm. so I that module with that map that you got in that, it, it it extends the map of Gulf Strike so you can do the left hook, which I knew I needed because the game, the game I published didn't have the left you couldn't do the left hook 
without that map, and I couldn't publish it. I wasn't going to give away war plans to Saddam Hussein, so it was just, you know, kept in a kept in a safe, you know, somewhere, you know, right? Until <laughs> until the war was totally over, and then it was published in the General as an extension. But that that oh, is, interesting. Yeah, so that was a uh, that was the real the real deal. Um, but what funniest thing that happened to me? So one night I come back from the so this is so the war you know Saddam Hussein invades uh, Kuwait. I think it was on August second of nineteen ninety, but plus or minus a day I guess. And so now we're in September. So you know obviously Saddam Hussein has not conquered Saudi Arabia at this point, and the American forces are what they call Desert Shield. They're flowing guys to the you know to the Middle East. And the war doesn't start until, you know, February, January, you know, of 1991, right? So you've got September through December and the news services don't have, you know, things to say. Right. Like, and somebody discovers Gulfstrike. And so I'm in the Pentagon working, you know, doing what I was doing. I was working, you know, day and night in the Pentagon with my clients working on these war games and analysis and all this to support whatever questions were coming up. And, um, I get to my house. It's late. Remember, this is before I had a. Um, there's no cell phones, right? Right. And if you don't know anything about the Pentagon, I, I don't know. I, I think they jammed the signal. You can't um, work a cell phone inside the Pentagon. They don't work inside the Pentagon uh, unless you go into the courtyard in the middle. Okay. So, no cell phones, no phone number to reach me because I'm working in a place where nobody you don't publish the phone numbers from and all this kind of crap. And I get to my house, and it's about, I don't know, it's 8 or 9 o'clock at night, and there are literally five news trucks sitting in front of my house in uh, Potomac, Maryland. Huh. And I get to the door, and my, my daughter, Lara, is very excited. You know, she, <laughs> this is, you know, she's like, Daddy, there's all these people want to see you. you know, she's a little girl, and, and my son is, you know, uh, you know, I guess he was just born. Because uh-huh. uh, I remember, yeah, yeah he was uh, November 1990. Yeah, so he... So, you know, he was, uh, he wasn't even born yet. You know, he, my wife's very pregnant. So I, yeah, I'm trying to put it back in my chronological. Mm-hmm. So my wife is incredibly pregnant with my son. My daughter is very excited and there's all these news trucks. And I met a lot of very famous people who became much famous newscasters, you know, and, uh, and so I go up and I literally do five interviews in a row. And this went on for uh, several weeks with this, once this game. But the first, one of the guys comes up and I think he was from Canadian TV and he goes to me and I, I hope this is okay on a podcast. He goes, yeah. So they got they got a video, you know, they got this guy, camera guy. He's got me in a chair in my office upstairs in my house. And he goes, so, Mr. Herman, why why is it that you wanted to make money off the the, the, the blood of dead Americans with the <laughs> game? And I'm like, I said, well, I did the game in 1983. Remember, this is 1990 now. And he goes, tells this camera guy, wait, stop. He goes through his notes, and then he literally says to me, I have to turn, now, I, damn, he says, I have to turn you from a scumbag into a seer. And <laughs> And then without even missing a beat, they crank up the video camera again. He goes, so, Mr. Herman, how did you have the prescience to do this game long before it was known that this would be a, you know, would happen? And that's how, so I learned a lot about the media in that one, Uh you know, one minute moment. I was like, wow, this is how this really works. Interesting. You know, the bottom line with media is um, the story has to either be very good or very bad. Stuff in the middle, nobody, you know, you know. dog bites man, nobody cares about man bites dog, you're on the news, right? Right, right. And, um. And very bad plays much better than very good. So they're looking for those extremes to get interest. And so I went from the bottom of the pile to the top of the pile in about one minute. Nice. Uh, Very cool. So, you know, so the Gulf War comes on. And like I said, I spent uh, – over that period, now going back to, you know, the fact that I'm a game designer, I actually – my company 
but it was very, you know, I, my business was I was doing wargaming. You know, I was a famous wargamer and I was doing it for the, you know, for uh, OSD, Office of Secretary of Defense, people who don't know acronyms and the Joint Chiefs of Staff. And I was doing lots of very, very cool stuff. But the company, I wanted to still be a game designer and the company saw that like authoring a book. So I was, you know, I had permission from the company to, to publish war games. But to keep my, but when you have all of these uh, clearances, which I don't have anymore, by the way, I gave all that stuff up so I could do whatever I wanted. Uh-huh. When I had all these clearances, I wouldn't do any game that was after Vietnam. In other words, because hmm. did a game on any subject that was relevant, I'd have to go through like twenty-eight thousand uh, reviews, see. and they would look at this stuff and go, "This has to be classified. You can't publish the game." So I just, so in that period of time, I did uh, Peloponnesian War for. Um, John Dun- Jim Dunnigan was the um, editor of S&T for a short period of time. Again, Again. You know, he was the editor, and he came to me and said, hey, you want to do a game for me? I said, sure. So I did this Peloponnesian, solitaire Peloponnesian War game huh. that eventually got published by Victory Games because when he left S&T, you know, the, it, 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 not under the current management. So not, this is not a decision game, but there was other people owned it at the time, and we were having trouble. I was trying to having trouble getting paid, and I, so I said, if, if I was having trouble at that point getting paid, I wasn't going to, you know, actually give them the game. So we 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 broke off, you know, we went our separate ways, you know, happily, and I gave the game to Victory Games, which was still a label, you know, it was Avalon Hill really, but I gave it to Victory Games, and that's how it got published. And then in that period, uh, then then Eric Dot came to me and said, "Look, I want you to do this introductory war game for me on the American Revolution because it was a, an anniversary coming up, I guess." Mm-hmm. So then, sure. So I ended up doing this game called We the People, which was actually probably a landmark design for me. Yeah, I think it was. And I want to I want to break in just before sure. just to, to set this up because I think this is this is one of the things I really wanted to talk to you about. I think this is important, and uh, you know, there's this <clears throat> the sort of I don't know what you call it, paradigm that there was at, at SBI, and I think it probably came. You can correct me if I'm wrong, but it came from Jim Dunnigan's sort of quantitative background and quantitative sort of outlook. And you know, there was the the whole you know figure out which units were there, then figure out what their strengths were, and then sort of put a map over everything and do everything very quantitatively and account for all these factors. And at some point, you. You, I mean, you designed this way and had this, you know, we talked about Next War being this, you know, extremely sort of quantitative, uh, you know, account for every possible factor on this map. And then you go to this game, We the People, which is sitting on my shelf right here. I have the, the first uh, the first Avalon Hill version of it. And it's completely different. I mean, it's, it, you have, a, you know, there, there are cards. I mean, who the heck put puts cards in their in their war games and 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 so there's there's a whole um i don't know i hate the word paradigm shift because it sounds very cliche but but talk a little bit about how you how you ended up producing this game that um that i think was very really influential for a ton of people um and and we're really before the euro i mean i i don't think i mean obviously euro games were a thing at that time uh, in Europe, but I don't think the, the Euro game craze hadn't really hit yet. So, so where are you coming from on all this? All right, well, let me. I want to set this up with. So, one thing that is, um, you talk about SPI in a certain style of game. Now, one thing that I would, I would, I learned this from Jim Dunnigan is, even though you're doing all that historical research and trying to understand some historical truth, and we also learned that a lot of the war games were being played solitary. That means that one person was playing both sides against a side, more to learn the history. Mm-hmm. So competitive gaming was not a, the major purpose of the old hex encounter games. I mean, people played them competitively, but it wasn't. It was more like the journey, not the uh, 
destination. Okay, I just want to, mm-hmm. and I put that up there as a, as a setup. And what Jim was particularly good at, and which I I've always tried to emulate, is you know for any particular game you pick, you know there's a lot of things you could do. You, you don't want to put the kitchen sink into the game because it, it gets overwrought. You know, doesn't you know? And a lot of one of the biggest mistakes that amateur designers make is they throw everything in the kitchen sink in because they think it needs to be there, and then the game is so overwrought nobody wants to play it. It's you know it doesn't work. Right, it doesn't right. tell a story because uh, it's just too hard to play. So Jim would always get all the history. He'd come up with two or three maximum key mechanics and all the history had to go through those three lanes if you want to call it, or two lanes or three lanes of process all the information had to go through that so that the game became playable but the information's always presented through those three or two or three perspectives and so the game becomes very playable and you could play it in a quick time you know it, it had that, that that was how you boil it down to something that you can use okay i learned that from him so I'm doing We the People, and I did a, a classic, like, 1776, which is an old Avalon Hill game on the American Revolution kind of game where, you know, there's armies, and you conquer, you know, New York, and you get points, or, you know, by controlling cities, you win the game. But at this time, you know, I, but I'm always at first part, I'm a historian, and history can t- sometimes really answer some very interesting questions if, you're, if your mind is open. And I read a, um, I, I literally in the uh, 42nd Street Library, which is a very famous library in New York, has a rare books division, and I read a first edition copy that was published like in 1780-something or other uh, by a guy named Lieutenant Colonel John Simcoe. Now, nobody knows who Lieutenant Colonel John Simcoe is, except if you watch this recent series called Turn. He's he's the British maniac in that particular series, which is not unlike who he probably really was. And I read his account of the war. He had to leave because he was an American. Well, he was not an American, but he led an American uh, counter-guerrilla unit, you know, counter-insurgency unit. Mm -hmm. And his account is like reading Vietnam. It's nothing like, it's not the stuff you learned in the history books. Okay. It's, it's not George Washington at Yorktown. It's not, you know, it's not, you know, the big battles and all, it's not that at all. It's this nasty guerrilla war, night operations, guys being, you know, catching a couple of guys and hanging them from a tree. I mean, it's, it's nasty, brutal, counter guerrilla, you know, guerrilla, counter guerrilla warfare stuff. Mm-hmm. And I saw the American Revolution as a very different thing after that. I, it really opened my eyes to what the real war might have been. And I realized that the game I had done was a complete game. It worked fine, but it didn't reflect any of this stuff. And so I literally took, and I've done this a few times in my life, I threw that design away, just literally dropped it, and I redid it. And this time, and then, uh, and it always goes back to, um, there's a little bit of economics. So you'll remember a game, which is, you know, I wish I had done it, but Richard Garfield did a game called Magic the Gathering. Yes. And what Richard Garfield had achieved for me was that cards, you know, really – so we used to use cards periodically in some of the games, but they were like perforated, you know, cheap cardboard cards. They didn't feel like cards, right? They were like yeah. more, like large kits that you could write more information. Stratomatic on. baseball type cards. Yeah, not even that good sometimes. But, yeah, okay. stratomatic baseball because at least they cut them out for you. Yeah. Uh, this, these you had to perf out uh, the way we used to pu- publish them. And so the, the price of producing real, you know, bridge poker-level cards had dropped like – by a factor of, you know, an order of magnitude. So now cards are cheap to make because Cardo Mundi's opened up a plant in the United States, and, you know, all of a sudden cards are cheap, you know, economically viable for a game. And so knowing that, I said, you know, maybe I can use cards because I want to get all of this historical information, you know, the events, not in the rules, but I want to put them on the cards. I realized if I could put the, the rule on a card, if I want, if there are a lot of rules you use like once in a game, like the Declaration of Independence, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, once. Uh, it's not going to happen a lot of times. And so you'd have to write a whole section of rules about the Declaration of Independence that people would have to implement. But if I give you a card, you play the card, you read what the card says, all of that goes away. 
And so I was using the cards as a way to move um, lots of procedure that I wouldn't be able to put in the game simply onto a card. And that sort of all of a sudden told this great story of the real American Revolution. Hmm. And I did this area control mechanic, and all of a sudden the game I was playing felt like the the war that Lieutenant Colonel John Simcoe would have recognized as the American Revolution. There are some big battles, but there's all this guerrilla warfare stuff going on, and there's political things going on, and mm-hmm. so it started to feel like the American Revolution, which is really a political military event, not a straight conventional war. Right. And and I didn't set out to design card-driven games, but I but effectively I created a new genre of games and. The thing that really made it popular in my mind is it brought competitive play into wargaming all of a sudden. Mm-hmm. It hadn't been around for a long time. People could play these card games, and they were very competitive because there was hidden information. There was risk. You ha- you're holding a hand of cards, which is very – people like holding hands of cards. You know, it just had all of the right elements, and it was its own thing. And so – and I think and I think in the same way, I, I might have done that again with Churchill. You know, I'm, I'm not one to you know follow the crowd. Mm-hmm. And – you know, my my biggest mistake, I think, as a game designer is I've never picked the top, like, you know, and again, it's a great, you know, Twilight Struggle is like the highest rated game on BGG. It right. uses that system, but they picked the cold where I picked the American Revolution. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they did a magnificent job, but, right. you know, and, and I, I love when people will play, I love the comments that go, hey, I just played Washington's War. It looks like it copies Twilight Struggle. I'm going, <laughs> dude, you know. Yeah. So don't know what's going on. <laughs> right, right. Well, I mean, that's the the thing that actually that that is fascinating to me that you mentioned. I mean, a lot of that's fascinating, but the the fact that the card driven games actually were aided by the fact that um, uh, the production of, I mean, the the physical production of cards so, suddenly became economically feasible due to what you said. There was some somebody had made a plant in the United States. Yeah, Carta Monday. Um, it's spelled C-A-R-T-O, Munda, Monday, M-U-N-D-I or D-A, I can't remember. Uh-huh. They were a Belgian um, card company that made like poker cards or bridge cards, right? You know, okay. that which you would consider a high quality, you know. Sure, yeah. Bridge exactly. cards are high quality. And so I think that the original Magic the Gathering cards were made, were, you know, printed in Belgium. I think that they were, in Bel- they were a Belgian company, I think. And Magic the Gathering became so big that to keep the contract, they moved, they built a plant. They were making so much money from Magic Gathering. I think they built a plant somewhere like, you know, the, off of one of the states of the Great Lakes. I don't remember where it yeah. was in, in Illinois, Indiana, somewhere at, but there was somewhere in that area. They built a, a large plant. And overall, that just changed the character of, and of course, I was working, and also I was doing We the People for um, Monarch Avalon, so they knew how to make real cards also. So okay. even though, but it changed the, you know, it was the whole thing of cards. By the way, I tell you a funny story. I actually played Magic Gathering against Richard Garfield once. Really? Yeah, so I was at a convention, I don't know, somewhere, uh, L.A. probably, and he was there, and, uh, you, know, I, uh, I, you know, I went up to see him, and he was aware of We the People at that time, and, you know, we had a kind of a game designer kind of conversation, I don't remember all the details, and he says to me, hey, you, you want to play, you know, would you, uh, by the way, I, we're working on this new expansion, would you, you play Magic Gathering, you want to play a game? I said, hey, of course I'll play, you know, but you're going, <laughs> right? right? So he goes to me, and this is what he says to me, this is hysterical, he goes to me, look, I got a couple of experimental cards in here, so I'm not sure they're balanced, but are you okay with that? I go, sure. So I've got a regular deck of, you know, normal cards that he's got like, you know, these blank cards that are written on, you know, with, uh-huh. you know, they had like a, you know, a template that they use of cards. And so we're playing the game. And then, and then for anybody who plays Magic the Gathering, if you lose 20 life points, you lose the game, right? You know, that's right. the, one of the deck. So all of a sudden he puts on the board a 2020 green creature that has berserk, you know, like you can't stop it. Uh-huh. And he wins the game on one card play. And I go, and I, my, I remember I go look at him and go, 
nice car. <laughs> <laughs> now that card eventually did come out, but after I, I, I think he's, I'm not just based on my play with him. I'm sure other people don't think right. it was so overpowered. They had to, they had to tone it down a heck of a lot before they could actually put it in an expansion. Mm-hmm. But I got to play the unbridled, you know, fantasy version. It was just like, you gotta be kidding me. <laughs> there was nothing. I didn't have a card in my hand that was more than a four, four. He had a 2020. It was like, okay. <laughs> <You know? laughs> now, now tell me, that's interesting. Do, do, did you ever have any experiences in playtesting, you know, SPI or, or victory games or anywhere where, where you guys had a, cause I, I assume that uh, as a, as a board game, a war game, as you put the process together, it, you you sort of don't get those kind of crazy overbalanced things, or, or or do you? I mean, how, have you ever had experience like that uh, in a, in a war game? Oh yeah, I mean, um, you know, uh, usually uh, what what ends up happening is in game design, and I you know, you know what like when you have an electrical system, you have something called a governor, like you know, it's like you have a circuit breaker, right? You know, uh-huh. like, so you know, you have an electrical system, and if you put on too much electricity. Instead of burning the house down, a circuit breaker pops and the power goes out, right? So you don't burn the house down. Um, in games, I have found that if you don't put in a circuit breaker, what looks like something that will never happen will happen. So, for instance, when I did Empire of the Sun, uh, I have a mechanic where, you know, certain cards, if you play them in reaction, you get to draw another card, right? So okay. you're, you're not gaining cards, but you're replenishing your deck. And I figured math, and I'm very good with, you know, probability math, so I figured out that given the size of the deck and all these circumstances, you know, on average, you would never get more than, you know, two to three cards, you know, like that in a hand. And then one day I'm playtesting it, and as a Japanese player, I think I drew 20 cards through that mechanism, right, which was like, oh, now, the probability of doing that is so low, but I then said, put a, then I had to put a rule in the game, is you can never draw more than three cards. Okay. You know, so the circuit breaker is that. And so if I hadn't had that experience, the game might have gone out with the way it was, and then I would have gotten the letter back, hey, we just played the game, it was ridiculous, the Japanese player drew 21 cards, you know. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I would go, like, that can't happen, but the answer is it can. It's, right. it's, it's highly unlikely, but sure. it still could happen. You yes. Know? And that's actually very important, right? Because, I mean, it, that one event, I mean, if it happens, you know, if it's incredibly unlikely, but... I get a friend together, you know, we, we set up a, a game for, we're planning on playing an entire afternoon, you know, and, and all of a sudden this mechanic happens and our, our game is basically, you know, blown up. Yeah, and you're, you're upset and, you know, but, but I, what I, so what I've learned from that is, so going back to your original point is, I always put in, even if I don't think it'll ever happen, I put in a circuit breaker on everything. In other words, yeah. everything has a limit, no matter what, no matter how much it is, because players are very good at saying, they're really good at max min, min problems, right? So they'll sure, say, sure. Wow, like, so let's go to Magic the Gathering, which is obviously a very successful game. Every so often, like every expansion probably, there's a card that they call broken and they have to, like, you know, limit its use, right? And the reason it is is somebody found a way to create, like, a, you know, a card drawing engine. There was a, you know, famous card called uh, uh, Necro, it was called a Necro deck, but the point was it was a card that would allow you to draw cards really fast Mm -hmm. and then punish your life. And so you created this engine where I could just, I could I could go through my entire deck like in two turns and win the game. Right. And so those cards immediately get, you know, they put restrictions on them after that, but they didn't see it in playtesting, right? So I always try to put a circuit breaker on everything in the game that has the ability to draw unlimited get if you can get an unlimited quantity of something under weird circumstances, I put a I always put a, a circuit breaker. You can only get two more, you can't get, you know, two hundred more. You know, that kind of thing. Got and it. so I even if I even if it doesn't come up in playtesting, just based on my experience as a designer, after sixty games I've learned that 
if I don't do this, it's going to bite me somehow. So I don't, I don't never go, I never go near it anymore. You know, I just, I solve the problem uh, with the mechanics and I don't have to worry about it in most cases. Um, then there's always the, you know, I'm, I'm playing a game recently. Uh, like last Tuesday, we played this game. It was a three player game. It wasn't Churchill, but I won't go and I won't say the game because it's a really great game, by the way. And this guy we're playing is a good gamer came up with a way where uh, he won the game twice in a row on two turns, you know, supposed to be like a you know 10 turn game. He won it twice in two turns. Now, if this was the Internet, you know, and I had to know the designer, I know the designer is a very competent guy. So I'm, and so my my supposition is, is that we screwed up, not that he screwed up. Right. Mm -hmm. But on the Internet, they'll immediately go, oh, the game is broken. Right did this and then everybody gets all up in arms and I looked at it as a puzzle. So I've already, so I sat down with it over the last couple of days while I was doing other things. I set this game up and I've been, I looked at the problem like analytically mm -hmm. and I've already come up with a can. It doesn't, it's not broken. You know, it's not a, it's not an issue. It's like, you just have to know the game better to avoid that happening. Right. That's, it's simple to do actually. But if you haven't played the game a lot, and that's really one of the biggest problems I see in the, the market is that there's so much product coming. I mean, Essen had 650 new games, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's, you know, like twice the number of days there are in a year. Nobody's going to play a game, two games a night every day of the year. So most of those games are going to die. And most people are going to give those games at best one look, you know, or two yeah. looks. Mm -hmm. And if that one or two looks doesn't you know, meet their fancy, the marketplace says you're done. You know, yeah. they're going to go to the next game. And that's okay. That's okay. The customers, you know, the, 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 the gamers get to do what they want to do. It's, it's about having entertainment. If that's not entertaining you, you're going to move on. Sure. And so I would say that as a designer, I'm I'm designing games that I want people to play ten years from now. And if you look at my most all the designs I've done over the last twenty years, they're all still being played and are still all in print because there's a lot of game there. Uh, but because there's a lot of game there, sometimes it doesn't you know it, it doesn't give it all up on the first date. You know, what I'm saying yeah <laughs> yeah you know it, it it's a little bit more circumspect and you have to like think a little bit more with my games. And so I think as a consequence, some people who are you know are only going to give it one look if the first if that first session goes really well life is good for me you know right. they like the game and they'll continue but if they have a session where somebody outplays them badly and they feel frustrated they're going to walk away and that's just the way it is and you know in a lot of my games people have walked away from and then come back to because they said well people 10 years later people still playing in part of the sun what's going on what's right. up with that right I thought I, this game sucked. <laughs> yeah, well, I, yeah, I do remember actually people were complaining about Empire of the Sun when it first came out in 2005. There were some complaints. I, I, I don't remember. I have to go back and and, um, and research that. But um, I, I find the wargaming hobby, maybe you have some comments on this, is, is very odd because it, I've I, in, in the past I did a lot of uh, video game type reviews and things like that. And, you know, the, the, the market there, the, the audience really expects you to put in a ton of time with the game before you have the right to really make any comment, right? I mean, if you if you only played the game for like 20 hours, then forget it. You, I mean, you're just, you, you're, you might as well have not played it. Um, and, uh, and people can be very harsh because people go through the game and they'll figure out all these sort of things. You know, this is the thing is, that you thought is broken is not, and this thing that you didn't catch is actually broken. And war games are very strange because I'll get all I'll see all these comments where people are rating games based on oh you know I read the rules through and it seems like this doesn't work yeah. or you know they'll play a game once and and it doesn't and I feel like if you're really going to to review a game I mean you need to play that game ten times you need to play it twenty times but the problem is you know I I still haven't played uh, Churchill ten times and that's you know that's on top of my uh, that's at the top of my list of, of games I want to play. You know, I've played it maybe four or five times, 
Uh, and there's a real limitation where I have to get people and I have to sit down. We have to make time. You know, I, I have a you know, busy job myself. So, so it, it's it's odd. Um, how do you, as a designer, how does that must affect you in, in, in well, some way? Well, a couple things. First off, people, um, there is no requirement to play a game 20 times to like it. You know, you can't decide. You know, look, people are going to make a judgment on something after one, two play, you know, if they were not 100% sure they'll play it twice, but if they're not getting out of the game, despite the fact that other people are telling them that this game's got a lot of depth and you're really not seeing right. it, I don't blame them. You know, like, it's their life and they got, you know, as you say, it's hard enough getting people together. You're not going to get them together for a session that you're torturing everybody with right. the way they look at the world. Um, also, there's a spectrum, you know, if you look at the comments on any game, and, and by the way, I don't think this is a war gamer thing. I think it's a gamer thing. You know, you know, you go on the board, any of the boards and you'll see the comments and, you could see like a guy or, or a gal will um, rate a game a one and say this game is you know not thematic, it's boring, it's like you know accounting, and, you know it's painful. I'd never want to touch it again. And you go to the tens, and there'd be somebody saying this game has got to- dripping with theme. Uh, I love the mechanic. You know, so they're saying the same exact words and they're having exactly the one hundred percent opposite reactions to mm-hmm. each other, one hundred eighty degree apart. And so that is just people like what they like it has nothing to do with the quality of the you know if the game is not properly professionally produced i'm, I'm leaving all that aside right right it's a professionally produced game it totally works i mean all of, taking that off the table because there's some of that but I, I think these days not so much uh but you know if you've got a real game company like gmt games you're going to get a quality game every so often there's a fumble but mm-hmm. not as bad as some people would make it if even but most of the time it's you know you're always getting an a plus product and if something goes wrong, they, they stand behind it. So you get, you know, they fix it. You know, right. you know what else can you ask them to do? Yeah. You know, my counters are misprinted. We'll give you a new set. Sure. Okay. And I'm sorry you were inconvenienced for a couple of days, but that's like, you know, it happens. Uh, and so, you know, that part of it is such that people, you know, they're, they're, they're paying their money. They, and then they say, I sold the game. I traded it away. And I always call that a zero sum success, right? Sure. You were unhappy. This person wanted the game. You got rid of it. He, he or she got it. Everybody's happy, right? Zero right. sum happiness. You know, the world, the equation balance somehow. Um, so that's the reality of gaming. You know, people have their own taste and they don't have to play a game 20 times. Um, but it's also what how their gaming goes. So you were just saying, like, you, you play Churchill five times. I think you're probably pretty good at it. I mean, yes, you may feel like you're not the best player, but I, I suspect that you're you're not incompetent. Anymore. It doesn't take it doesn't take 10 times to play Churchill to get good at it. I got to be honest with you. I mean, you played it five times. You, you you know the rules, right? Oh, yeah, of course. And you've and you've seen different situations. You can see how there could be other situations mm-hmm. based on what you know. So you're you're into the exploration space now. And it, also the game plays differently with different people. Right. But a lot of people. And I, again, I, I I'm. I, I, I'm, I'm very big on trying to learn. Uh, I think that, you know, I get more learning from bad feedback than good feedback. Because if somebody's very happy, I'm happy. We're right. all happy. But they're telling me things that they like about the game that I liked about the game. That's why I produced it that way. Right. But when I hear from people who don't like the game, I read that more carefully. Now, what I don't like, and I think it's very infantile, is the, you know, look, Mark Herman is the dumbest, ugliest guy on the planet Earth. You know, guess what? I had kids. I already heard that stuff. Right. You know, so you're not you're not impressing me, and you're not hurting my feelings. And right. so, right. knock yourself out. You look like an idiot on, online. And there are some people who are almost like uh, they need validation. So, in other words, if I say the game stinks and everybody else is not agreeing with me, I have to say it louder and more often because clearly they don't understand. And so that there's that kind of person. And I find that to be particularly obnoxious. Look, if you don't like the game, say you don't like the game, rate it a one and walk away. You know, just go off and do something else. Right. But some people don't know how to do that. Yeah. It's like to cause trouble. 
and that's fine too. That's the world. But I think that's self-writing. But where I'm going with all that is that that the bad feedback is teaching me something. And so I've watched um, Tom Vassell is a, is a looks like to be a very nice guy. I don't know him. I, I corresponded with him once over something that, uh, and it was a very reasonable professional exchange. Mm-hmm. But Tom does these great videos. He's got a whole crew. And yep. what I learned from Tom is most of the market wants what I call a medium weight one hour game. Mm-hmm. But they what what that crowd likes to do what they what I would call I can't characterize a crowd, but there's a group of there's a large part of the market that wants to sit down as a group yep. and they want to play a game, be done in an hour. Either they'll play that game a second or third or fourth time if they got more time, or they're going to play three games that night and they're all an hour long, right? Sure. And that's the experience they want. And and what I do, and and what I've been doing is, um, I feel like I'm a, a full. I'm trying to really explore being a full spectrum designer. So Churchill was moving myself more from the classic, you know, even CDG, but you know, the Empire of the Sun into the spectrum toward, you know, people who were saying I'm interested in a thematic game that's historically. I'm a historical game designer. It could be historically action and very thematic and still be very fast playing and interesting, which I hope Churchill is becoming. Mm-hmm. Maybe it will, maybe it won't. Who knows? But I think it's been a success from my perspective. It's uh, it's opened a lot of people's eyes to a new way of looking at games because there's no design like it. I did this game that I'm self-publishing called Ribbit. Um, it is a classic, like, checkers kind of game, right? Mm-hmm. You go online, you can see it's gotten some very good reviews, and people are going like, wow, there's a lot here, but it's a it's a, it's a a five-minute game. Okay. And so, and... Ribbit? You know, R-I-B-B-I-T? Yeah, like like what the noise sure. of, uh, like a frog, frog makes. Okay. And you can buy it on Amazon. If you look up Ribbit, the jump, move, and block game on Amazon, you'll get it. And if you buy a copy, it, it costs with shipping. You know, it's like twenty bucks. And you know, I get it. I get a notification. My wife, I give my wife your address, and she, I, I, I'm the one who produces the game. You know, I put the games in the bag, and okay. she mails them. And you know, we're having a good time running a company. You know, a little company together. But my point is. With that game, it's a, what they call a filler game. Uh, Marco Anod just, you know, re, re, you know, uh, re, video reviewed. He called it the king, the, the king of the vi- filler games. But it's a game that you can play with a seven-year-old and you can play with a fifty-year-old, and that's what I designed it with. My nephews and nieces play it, and you, you you can take two kids and drop a game down, show them in one minute, less than a minute, how to play, and then they play for two hours. I think that's a success in anybody's mind. Mm-hmm. And I produced the game with a plastic board and wooden pieces, so it's. <coughs> You can play it outside. You can take it on trips. You know, I was trying to develop that part of the market, you know, right. see what that goes. And so it's not even an hour game. It's a, you know, it's a five-minute game. But strategically, there's a lot of different ways to play it. And so I think as people play it more, they keep going like, wow, there's another way to play it. It's, you know, I feel like I've done something really well there. And since it's a classic strategy game, it doesn't have any kind of limit. Uh, I'll eventually try to turn it into an app if I get my son to help me with that. But mm-hmm. but the point of it is that I'm doing you know, a Churchill's not a classic war game. Ribbit is nothing like any of the above. <clears throat> and I'm, I've got some other designs where I want to go down paths, but I would like to, I would like to tap into various, you know, parts of the market. Now, the, I've done, you know, to, given this is a video game crowd, you know, they, they, I have never done a video game, but a lot of my games, not a lot, but four or five games have been turned into P, uh, computer games. Mm-hmm. And I did do an app game, you know, with Shenandoah Studios, which is now owned by Smithereen. Yeah. I did a game called um, Battles of El Alamein, which is an app you can get right now on the Apple Store, right. which is, you know, this is that generation. Yeah. What I've learned from that experience, though, is although people like meaty games, when you're, when you're playing an app on a phone or a tablet, it's got to be a short game. You know, if you're sitting, I see people playing, you know, uh, Candy Crush or, right. you know, Angry Birds. They're doing it on the platform in, you know, New York City. And the train's going to be here in four minutes and they play two games. You know, that's what they're looking for to idle away the, the, the downtime. 
-hmm. So Ribbit is as an app would play in that kind of period of time, it has a shot only on the time dimension, whether people like it or not, it's another issue, but you got to think about time as a dimension. Well, that's, and, that's, I, I guess that's, that's true, but, um, uh, you know, there is a whole other spectrum of that market, right? Because I mean, the, there are the people who want to play an asynchronous game. The game may take quite a while. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, your turn may be, I mean, I've, I'm playing, actually I'm playing an LL main game right now with a guy that, uh, just on, uh, on game center. And I get, you know, I get a move maybe a day or every two days I get a turn. And uh, we, uh, you know, we trade it back and forth. I mean, it's going to be going on for probably a couple months. Um, and then there are also the guys that sit in the, um, you know, they come to the convention and everybody's playing, you know, their middleweight one-hour games. And these guys just set up some giant monster and then they play it for three days. Okay, so I'm with you 100%. So you and I are from the same tribe, right? I mean, yeah. that's what I do. I mean, I've been playing Empire of the Sun online for the last decade in, you know, asynchronous games. I'm, I'm playing in two right now uh, with the, the bot with a guy on BGG and on Constant World. We've been playing the same staff game we're in the middle of right now. Mm -hmm. So totally get that. But that is a section of the market, and it's also the, the harder core. Forget about whether it's a Euro game or a war game. I mean, I, I just learned a game called Alchemy. Okay. Alchemy, and, I, and look, I'm professional game designer. I, I, I designed Empire of the Sun, so I understand complicated games, right? Mm -hmm. or, you know, strategically different games. Mm -hmm. Alchemy is more complicated than Empire of the Sun. Mm -hmm. I swear to God. And yeah, it has really pretty pictures of wizards and, you know, you know, fantasy kind of art all over it. I get, I, the art's really cool, but it's a, you know, I'm, I'm, you got to publish treatises on chemistry in the game. I mean, let's be kidding. And, and I come back to the fact is that time is time. So in other words, I can play Empire of the Sun with a newbie on the 1943 scenario, which is what we use for tournaments, right? This is the competitive scenario for the, for the game. It takes three hours, okay? If I play Alchemy, it's going to take five hours. Uh, I have played it. It takes five hours. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't, so people usually equate, you know, deep strategic gaming, like we do in wargaming, as being much, much longer than a Euro game or a, you know, lighter, fair game. And the answer is that's not true. Three hours is three hours regardless of what the game is. You could be playing a simple game or a complicated game or whatever, but it's three hours, it's the same amount of time. And so the argument that, you know, complex war games can't be played because they take too long, the answer is there's a whole section of the, uh, of the hobby market, you know, the Euro market or the larger, you know, gaming market that, you know, pandemic legacy. I hear great things about it, but that takes, like, you know, 14 or 15 sittings to get through the storyline and, I played uh, Agricola, great game. It takes, you know, four, you know, it could take two, three hours to play that game. So it takes no longer to play Agricola than it does to play Empire of the Sun. So people, so if you're looking at time, it's what subject, what is the, t I find that the thing that drives people to play games is the topic or the mechanic. Yeah. So it's, and so, you know, if you want to play um, a card driven game uh, and you're playing Twilight Struggle, well, Twilight Struggle takes as long to play as, any Euro game, but people have found enough of a story there and the competitiveness that they like it. That's great because it's a phenomenal game. Uh, you know, Empire of the Sun is actually a shorter game in many cases. Uh, it's, so it, it's not a complexity issue. It's topic. What is what 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 theme or story do I want to live in? And that's why I find Churchill such a fascinating thing for me because that was the story I wanted to live in. And hopefully, other people are going to go along for the journey. But I didn't want to fight World War II. I wanted to talk about World War II. If you know right. what I'm saying, and that's a different kind of game. So, I mean, this is all, and I want to I want to go back a little bit because um, you know we're talking about we, we we got off on this when we were talking about we the people, but <clears throat> talk to me about what was happening uh, in the hobby sort of in that time when I mean GMT 
was founded, and I think that I got their first game was Silver Bayonet. I think that was, uh, or yes. the or the Mercury game. I can't remember, but that was I remember that time. It was right around. It was actually right around the Gulf War. It was not, I think nineteen ninety ninety one so uh, somewhere in there. Um, I'm looking at my shelves. Uh, I know Silver Bayonet somewhere over there, but it'll take me take me too long to find it. But yeah. you're right, and, and so. So, so what, what was going on? I mean, you were you were you had you had now left uh, Victory Games. I mean, Victory Games. Uh, oh, I was, I was at Booz Allen. I you were at Booz Allen, and 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 yeah. and how did you see the hobby at that time? I mean, you were you're, there was there was really the. Um, I mean, I was in college right around the end of that time, so I did have some. You know, I had the the old mainframe uh, email uh, um, access, but you know that wasn't there was no there were no web browsers. Uh, it was kind of hard to get a hold of people. There was um, 91, 92 people did have Genie, AOL. Oh, yeah, I was on Genie. Yeah, so Genie, yeah, Genie was the – we played a lot of Ant Squad Leader on Genie. Um, but, uh, I mean, how did you see the hobby at that point? I feel that was like a real dead time for, for board games. Uh, well, I guess, you know, I may not be the best person to comment because at this point I am a full-time defense consultant. I'm the father of two, mm-hmm. you know, that kind of thing. But going back to your genie, so I was on the genie network, yep. which came, which for people don't remember, it became AOL eventually, I think, uh, or AOL bought them. I, I can't remember how that worked, but genie became AOL uh, yep. somewhere. That's the lineage, and I was part of a group of gamers on there, and and I have a old friend from SPI who's you know I've, I've co-designed with for years, named Richard Berg, yep. he's a well-known game designer, yes, yes, and he had for a short period of time he had a company called like. SDT or it was simulation design SD I don't know I can remember he had three letters like SPI but it yeah. was different letters I don't remember and I did a game for him called the Great Battles of Alexander so in this period of time my world is look I'm a full time defense consultant but you know that's work and I need to have this out creative outlet because I have to do things you know when you're doing working in the Pentagon there's a certain there's a lot of politics and, you know, you got to, it's got, there's a certain amount of verisimilitude that is required to do those things. Mm-hmm. That's not what we do in the war gaming exactly. Right. Yeah. And so I needed this outlet. So I was still, so I did, you know, this Peloponnesian war game. And then so Berg goes to me, he's got this new code. He goes, I want you to do a game for me. I said, sure, I'll do a game for you. So I did this great battles of Alexander, uh, my original degrees in ancient history. So I do the great battles of Alexander. And then one day he writes me, he calls me or writes me. I can't remember which he says, look, I, um, I sold your contract to a company called GMT Games that just started up, right? So, mm-hmm. and I go, so again, I've been sold as an indentured servant. Yes. Second time to another game company. So I, I, I seem to have this part of my career where I, I, I'm just sort of told, you know, you, 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 your contract has been acquired by these people and now you, you know, you, you're, you now work for them. And I'm like, when do I get to make some decisions in this process? Anyway, so the, the interesting thing about this story is that, remember, this is the beginning of the uh, you know email. You know, this is b- very early days, right? Yes. This 1990, 1989, 1990. I do this game, and the, the experience was I was a designer, and Richard Berg was in, and I was in Washington at this point, and Richard Berg's back in New York, in uh, Scarsdale, I think, New York, in Westchester, and then Gene Billingsley, who I had never met or knew other than through email, and never even spoke to him on the phone. Mm-hmm. Now he's like one of my best friends. Um, he's living in Hanford, California, which is, as I've now found out, uh, about 40 minutes from Fresno. Mm-hmm. I never knew it was actually until uh, I went to there for the first time uh, just recently. And the artist is an, an ex Victory Games uh, artist named Ted Kohler was in Florida. Okay. And so we're doing so. I'm writing rules. Richard's, you know, editing rules. Ted Kohler's doing the maps and the counter. Oh, Roger McGowan's doing the counters. Yeah. California. He's in L.A. And then you know, and uh, you know, and. And, you know, Roger McGowan's also an amazing talent, also a dear old friend of mine, so I'm still working with. I just did a game for him. I'll talk that in a minute. 
And so he does the cover and the counters. And so this, and so I get to this convention in 1991 and they hand me this yellow box. The first time I ever saw the game, it was in the box and shrink wrap. It was the most amazing experience of my life. It was like, wow. You know, I was like, it was, and it came out great. You know, it, it launched a series I've been doing, you know, Richard Berg and I have been doing the great battles of history yep. since 1991. And we just came out, you know, we had two come out in the last like 18 months. So we're still doing it. And now we're re- revising with a game I'm going to call the great commanders, which is a much simpler, you know, imagine, uh, all that knowledge from all those great battles of history. Now we're boiling it down to a great commanders of history series, which is a, you can play most of the battles of great battles of history with miniatures and a whole different, you know, mechanics. Mm-hmm. And a battle takes like 20 minutes. Okay. You know, using action dice. It's kind of a cool system. But the point is, I'm able now to synthesize all of that detail down to some very straightforward mechanics that, that still be historically, you know, themed mm-hmm. and correct. So, so through this period now, I'm just designing games. So I did We the People. I did Great Battles of Alexander. I did For the People for the old Avalon Hill Company. Uh, I, by the way, For the People comes out on a Friday at a game convention. On Monday, they announced that Avalon Hill's been bought by Hasbro. Yeah. So, they, and that game sold out in eight weeks because it was only 1,500 copies. And then eventually... 1,500 copies, that's all? Of the first edition. Well, yeah, because they, they remember, it was Monarch Avalon, so they were a printing company. So if they needed more copies... Oh, they, they just print more, got it. They yeah. print more. That's not like, you know, they're the printer. You know, that was the whole point. That was the advantage of them. They, you know, if I, I said, hey, Eric, I need, you know, what a lot of people don't know is I, I used to do... I'm very, I used to do the inventory control for Victory Games, and I would say, okay, game's almost sold out, but, you know, I've got 250 maps, and I've got 100 counters of counter sheet A. You know, you have, like, a different number of all these components, and I yep. would then send in a work order, you know, to print, like, you know, X amount of all the, you know, to get everything up to the same, you know, highest number, and then we'd have another 200 games, you know, yep. that's, mm-hmm. and clean out the inventory. So I was very good at, you know, you got to do inventory control. So you could do that with Monarch Avalon. Now when you're going to China, I mean, it's a whole different ballgame, right? you got to order they. They do the whole thing. They shrink racket. They send it over, and you, and you send it to customers. So it's a different, very different model now. But uh, so uh, you know, this is how the world is moving. So I'm doing for the people. And then for the people got picked up by GMT, and it's you know it's been in print now for what 16 years or so. What mm-hmm. uh, one of my most successful games, and when I still play, you know, again for the people when it first came out, everybody said there was some you know it was the, the if the Confederacy you know you know. If the union wasn't paying attention, which meant that it had to put a lot of guys in front of Washington D.C., you'd lose the Capitol. Yeah. And the first time that happened at the first convention, games broke, and we got to we got to have House rules to fix it. I go, no, let me explain how this is supposed to work. <laughs> uh-huh. Explain what you're doing wrong. And of course, over the years, all I never changed the game, and, and everybody knows how to deal with it. You know, that's it, but it's like that early days. You know, you know if you're you know the game can become unstable if you you really blow it you know if you right. if you try you can screw up the game mm-hmm. from a historical remember the game plays fine even after Washington falls it's just now you're in a hole you got to dig your way out mm-hmm. and it and people say well it's not historical the answer is yeah but you know you that was your fault not mine <laughs> right it's oh, well, in the place <laughs> yeah well that's the that's the that's the a fallacy that if something happens that didn't actually happen in history then this game's not historically accurate whereas that seems to defeat the whole purpose of playing the game. But I think we're on the same page with that. Yeah. Um, so, so I mean, obviously GMT became, uh, you know, a going concern, a quite, a, a quite successful going concern. Gene Billingsley and uh, Tony Curtis and... Uh, Mark Simonich. Uh, Mark Simonich and Roger McGowan and, uh, you know, uh, Andy Lewis uh, have done a phenomenal job. You know, I, I think I got everybody on the, on the yeah. principles. Yeah. But they, they've done an amazing job to... Build, you know, but again, that was the internet there. Because you, you, remember, remember, I said way back when that SPI went under because they didn't handle retail right. Yes. Well, with the internet, 
you're back to the old model, but you have a, you have access like a retail outlet. So now I don't need a store to sell my game. Sure. I can sell it to the entire planet Earth. And what's also fascinating to me, by the way, just talking about the changes in the audience, right? Mm-hmm. Well, first of all, it's, it's, it's a global community, right? Yep. So back in the day, you know, we had a distri- – like SPI had a distributor that was in England or in somewhere in – you know, would handle the European side. You know, we'd ship them the game. They'd buy a container of games, and they sold them into Europe and all that. Yep. Uh, with the P500, which was the, uh, you know, uh, Gene Billingsley came up with this concept for the P500, which is basically the games became limited liability subscriptions, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, I had con- talked about what put – and that came out of his thinking on my telling what, what caused SPI to go out of business. Mm-hmm. So, you know – what did what specifically cause? I'm sorry to cut you off. I really want to get that. What did cause SBA to go out of business? Oh, cash. Oh, cash. Look, here's here's the primer in business. There are two things that matter in business. You can go to Harvard Business School and you can do all the all of this, that, and the other thing. But the only thing that keeps a company in business is cash flow. Profit is the motive by which you why you wanted the company. You wanted to do this and you thought you could make money. That's the profit motive. Mm-hmm. But the thing that keeps a company in business is cash flow. So, so they didn't those, have cash flow. Okay, keep going. Flow. couldn't pay the employees. Because you're not getting the amount of money going out the door is more than what's coming in the door, which is, you know, with economies, of course, they don't they just borrow money with bonds and we go bankrupt. But as a country, but in a company, you just go bankrupt faster. Right. As soon as you pay your employees, they say, well, I got to I got to eat and I'm going to leave. You know, so cash flow kills it. And so what was happening was we would outlay the money to get a game printed. We'd send it to the retailers and the the time lag starts becoming four or five months. Right. Mm -hmm. Play that big hunk of cash. Five months later, money starts coming in, but it doesn't come in all at once. It comes, it trickles in based on sales, and eventually you just you can't you can't run a company that way. Now with the internet, now uh, you know Churchill. Other than the, you know if you buy a pre-order, Churchill is I think it's eighty nine dollars. I think that sounds right. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know it's sold out, but you know the price will go up in the aftermarket. But right now if there's a few copies around there. They're eighty nine dollars. But when GMT sells you the game over the internet for eighty nine dollars, they get eighty nine dollars. Right. Right. Well, that goes a long way to keeping a company, you know, in uh, T-shirts and coffee. Yeah. yeah. Now, the other, but I mean, when you're saying you, it goes to retail, I mean, those retailers are paying you, right? They're paying you a discount, but they're paying your distributors are paying you. So, yeah. I mean, but it's not like it, you're, it's not like you're earning royalties, you know, like on on just just royalties on the game, right? Well, no, but see, here's the problem. So this is why the P500 fixes all that. I'll go that. So. SPI was basically always in hock to their printer, a company called Cosi over in Brooklyn. Okay. And so, you know, we would owe those guys like, you know, $35,000. I'm making up the number, right? But it, it would be a number like that. And yeah, we now want to print three more games, which means we're going to go into a whole another, you know, $20,000 or whatever it is for the paper and the ink and all that crap. Yeah. So if we didn't give them a, you know, pay off part of the 35000 you know, they weren't going to print the next three games and now you're out of business, right? So right. you're always... So what the P500 does is says, okay, we've now gotten enough interest to publish this game. You, we're going to charge your credit cards. I get all this cash. I now go to the printer. So this is really Kickstarter before there was Kickstarter, right? Yeah. So I go, to the, I go to the printer and say, give me 5,000 games, and here's the money, right? Mm-hmm. They give you 5,000 games. Now, what pays for the whole print run in, back in the day was 500 copies. You know, that was why it was called P500. Right. Dude, if I could sell 500 copies of the game at a, even at the pre-price, that's the cost of making 5,000 of them. Now it's really more like seven fifty, but that's just you know the sure. same idea. So I go to my printer, I give them you know give them the money, they give me the games. I now turn around to my seven hundred fifty people who bought the game, and I ship them the game. Thank you very much. They all got it at a lower price, and now I've got you know let's call it forty five hundred more games to go. Mm-hmm. Now I still have capital tied up in the forty five hundred games, right? Mm-hmm. But I now but it's all profit from here on in. Right. So if I sell it to a retailer. I'm only getting, you know, 35% of the of the retail price of the game. I'm still making money. 
if I sell it to a, a, an individual over the internet, I'm getting 100% of the value of the game. I can even hold a sale at 50% off and make money on the game. So I'm making money on each copy of the game now, yeah. so it's all profit. Now we're away from the cash flow problem. Mm -hmm. But what happens is that, uh, you know, all that aside, you know, it's this it's this piece of that I got cash flow that keeps me now going to your distributor thing. So I give it to your distributor and you, and you know, you call Bruce, call you, Bruce, you call me up and I say, okay, you want, um, you know, you want a hundred games. Here's a hundred games. So now you owe me whatever, you know, thousands of dollars, right? Right. Terms are you're getting the games to 35, you know, 30, you're getting 60, 60, 63, you know, 65% uh, or whatever off on the game. Uh, so I'm only going to get ultimately 35% of the value of what I just gave you from what I could sell at retail directly. And you have terms like 30 days EOM, which means end of the month, um, could be 60 days, end of the month, whatever it is. And so I send you the games. You now don't owe me any money for 30 days. Mm -hmm. right? But then what happens is let's say one of the games is not a good seller, right? It doesn't move off the shelves right away. And that goes on. You know, at some point, you know, we're now six months or a year down our relationship. You go, look, I'm ready to take some more games of your new stuff, but I'm still holding this dog you did a year ago. You need to get. I need to send these back, and you need to give me a credit. So now you get into this whole, you know, you know, and and if you don't give me the take the games back, I'm not buying new games. And you know, so we get there's a whole politics and mathematics around how well the games are selling because if you you know, it, you can't always have a great seller. You know, right. not every game is you know um, Twilight Struggle. Not every game is you know Carcassonne. You know, remember the 650 games came out on S, and they all cannot be you know settled as a Catan. <laughs> Just right, of course. You know, there's a couple of major um, brands, and then every so often a new brand, you know, a new line, you know, before there was Carcassonne, there was nothing, then they came out of Carcassonne. Now there's a line of games that are tied to Carcassonne, has a big following, or there's a designer, you know, famous designer who did that game is now whatever that guy or gal puts out, everybody wants to buy it no matter what it is. So there's there are brands, and every year somebody who's not one of those brands is trying to break in, like myself in some cases, like Churchill, and so you're trying to break in with a new a new mechanic, a new brand, whatever it is. And, you know, you, you have limited, you know, most, most 99% of the time that's, that doesn't work. You sell some games and you're done and sometimes it works. But th the point is, is that your ability to produce a hit isn't going to happen every time you can have, you know, there are mega hits, there are, you know, successful games and then there's some unsuccessful games and the unsuccessful games is going to bring down your overall ability to get, create that cash flow model that you need to keep going through the retailers. So having the internet is what fixed all of that. I now can, I have now direct access to clients in Serbia and China and Japan and, you know, Germany and London and everywhere. And, and I don't have to deal with, you know, distribution chain where, and I get more money also on top of all that. Right. So, so obviously GMT, uh, you know, has, has, um, taken advantage of this, uh, yeah, of this model quite well. How how do you feel that game? I mean, the game. You also mentioned the gameplay um, sort of dynamic has changed. Do you think that that's just because of the sort of mechanics, or do you think that people? There, I mean, there are all these different ways to play games now. There's Vassal. You can have meetup groups. People, can, you know, kind of show up and and play. Um, we have a very active um, advanced squad leader group here that just you know you send out an email to the listserv and. Ooh. Say, hey, I want to play this Monday, and somebody says, "Yep, we're playing, uh, you know, Guards Counterattack." Well, actually, nobody would ever say we're playing the Guards, guards Counterattack, but uh, you know, they'd say, "Hey, yeah, we're, we're um, I'll be there at uh, you know six thirty, uh, and we'll play. Let's choose a scenario." H how do you feel that that dynamic has changed? Have you experienced that? Well, first off, I mean, go back to my early first off, 
you know, it's the internet, right? It's, it's social media. I mean, we're all, I mean, you, I mean, I, I, have I, you and I actually physically ever met? I think we I, have. I don't, actually, we may have at Origins, but I, that was, that would have been a long, long, long yeah, time well, ago. I think I've met everybody in the game, every war game and I have yeah. met said, in Origins at some point in my life. Yeah. I haven't seen everybody in 30 years, but, right. but the point is, um, you know, but we're talking over Skype, and I'm looking at a picture. It looks like Donald Rumsfeld in a spacesuit is what the, your icon is. That's right? correct. Yep. Yeah, Space so, Rumsfeld. Yeah, Space Rumsfeld. So I'm looking at this weird icon, I, although I know, do know what you look like because we once hooked up directly on the video thing. Um, so, you know, our ability to hook up electronically is a whole other dimension, right? So people can play a lot of different ways. They can play asynchronously. They can play in real time over the, you know, with Skype or Google Hangout or whatever else is going on out there. You can play in these various like game room that they have for the, a lot of the GMT games is very successful. And there's other versions of that I know out there for different games, you know, that people like to play. Mm-hmm. And there's conventions, but that's always that's really more of a, a more of a unique. That's not you don't run a business from that. That's like, those are fun events. But then there's the people who get. I'm in a gaming group. Uh, this guy named a great guy named. In fact, you probably know him because if you're an ASL guy, J.R. Tracy. Is, yeah, of course. I mean, I I, I know J- of J.R. Tracy absolutely. J.R. Tracy, besides being a, a wonderful person and a magnificent human being, is a particularly good ASL player. So I know all the ASL guys know him because he's you know yeah. he's he's always a contender for any you know tournament in oh, ASL yeah. a contender. And so I go to JR's, you know, most Tuesday nights here in New York City. He's got the most amazing, you know, I have a, I have like 800 games, maybe a thousand games, mm-hmm. and I have 25% of what JR owns and has. Uh-huh. And, and since I don't buy games anymore, really, very hardly at all, my collection is expanding at a much lower rate than his is. So he's got, I don't even, in fact, now it's, it's really terrible, but I don't, I'll go, oh, JR will be buying this game. I don't need to buy it because mm-hmm. I'm going to play it once or twice. Uh-huh. And I have no room in this apartment. So yeah. it's, it's really a, it's not a desire issue. It's like, I have no room. Got it. And my wife's answer is, you can have more games, but you have to leave. And I don't. <laughs> so, yeah. even that I want to stay, I, yeah. I have to modulate what I get. But, gotcha. But JR, so I go to JR's every Tuesday, and a great group of guys who, you know, you know that I play. In fact, I'm hooking up with a friend, one of the guys from the group, going to watch the Jet game. These are like my friends, you know. So, this, mm-hmm. so I have a gaming group, and that's really where I do most of my gaming and playtesting, by the way. Uh, in fact, um, uh, one of the things that's, you know, talk about, you know, why I, I, I call myself an artist on, based on this following criteria. So, you know, obviously I've done app games and I've done PC games and all that, but there are some games that just couldn't get done if you had to get paid for it, right? Mm-hmm. So I did Empire of the Sun, and I have always been fascinated about, you know, I'm, I've been fascinated about the conferences of the world to I did Churchill, and I've always been fascinated about the... Um, the war in the Pacific that could have happened in 1930, you know, this thing called Plan Orange. That was the Americans yes. had color plans to, you know, if we, what if we had to fight the dream? It's what we do today in real. They're all called war plans. And so the United States used to practice these war plans. Um, and so we used to practice these war games that went on from like, uh, uh, right from after World War One, right up to the actual, you know, bombing of Pearl Harbor up in the Naval War College, which I was an adjunct professor to for a while. Um, very cool story. So there's in this in the Naval War College, which is in Newport, Rhode Island. It's a beautiful mm-hmm. facility, right? You know, right on the water. It's a why well, you always want to go to naval facilities. Are always on you know ports, right? So right. they're beautiful. There's sun. There's water. They're great. So I, I was teaching there, and I was there for a conference, and I went into this old old uh, built one of the oldest buildings on the campus because there's a vending machine. They said, I wanted some food. It was at lunch, and I couldn't get off post. They said, "Oh, there's a vending machine room. It's got a lot of stuff over here." So I went to this old building, and I come into this room. And I go to these vending machines, and I look at the floor, and the floor's got these unusual tiles, right? Mm-hmm. And then I look up, and there's a second-floor gallery, and then all of a sudden I realize I was in the room that they war-gamed out playing orange from 
from you know 1920 to Pearl Harbor. This is the room where Nimitz sat and everybody. And now it's a vending machine room. <laughs> and I, but I recognized it because of the second floor gallery. I said, wait a minute. And I, I went up to and I there's a staircase. I went to the second floor gallery and I'm looking down on where. I mean, I literally I went to the library and got a book of one of the pictures of the guys playing the game on the floor. And I went back into that gallery and I looked. And I was literally staying in the spot that the picture was taken from, and I could see this old you know. There's tables sitting in the corner, and you know it's a, it's a storage room, vending machine room. Yet at one time this was the center of U.S. strategic thinking about war in the Pacific. It was mm-hmm. just fascinating to me. So I've always wanted to do a game on that. So there's a, however, to P5, to get you know 500 people to want this game as a variant on Empire of the Sun and all that is just it's just not going to happen, right? right? The economics and the interest levels just not going to be there. But I wanted to do the game. But the good news is I have this amazing friend named Roger McGowan. Yes, and. Uh, so I go to Roger and say, look, I got this idea to do a, a variant of Empire of the Sun. That's a 1932, you know, battles, you know, like Jutland style World War II, you know, but before World War II, you know, the treaty fleets fighting it out for the Pacific over the Philippines, like, like Plan Orange. And he goes, oh, I'd love to do that in C3I magazine. So it's done. I mean, I'm right now improving the final thing. So if you get the next C3I magazine, yeah, I will get a full, you know, you don't have to get Empire of the Sun. It's a full set of rules. It's 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 a standalone game. Oh, it's standalone. It's totally standalone. You don't need to have anything to play it. But if you do play Plan Orange, you will also know how to play Empire of the Sun. Yeah. So it, it will translate back up to its original design because it's the same rules with some changes, obviously, because yeah. you know you don't have to, planes are different and all that. But right. it's ninety-five percent Empire of the Sun mm-hmm. with a new scenario. You get a full set of pieces, a full-size map. By the way, it's got cards and it's got forty-eight cards. Wow. Yeah. Now these are not going to be you know, the cards that you would get in Empire of the Sun, but they're, you know, the cards you can get in the magazine. So yeah. it'll back to the old school. But you, if you sleeve them, they'll be fine. Yeah. But they're going to be same quality art. You know, Mark, this is Roger McGowan doing them, right? Yeah. Mark did the map. And um, a great guy that I've uh, come, a guy named, nobody knows, a guy's name is Francisco Cominares. He's a Canadian, great graphic. He's been helping me make cards for the various games. And he's just, you know, the wonderful guy. I've never met him personally, but talk to him all the time. And, so there's these great people in the hobby that have become my best friends and, mm-hmm. you know, and, you know, they helped me. And so this game is being done where nobody got paid a dime. I just want to be clear. I didn't get one penny for doing it, but I wanted to do it. So as an artist, I said, I want this game to exist. I'm going to put the, it's the same amount of effort to do this as to do any game, but I, I think I want this game out there and, you know, I'll enjoy it. I'll have professional counters. Everybody else gets it also. And, you know, we'll see where that goes. Maybe it'll help sell some more Empires of the Sun, but that's yeah. not really a big issue. So, well, Empire you know, of the Sun is sold out. Just so you know, uh, uh, no, it's not. That's no. It was temporarily out of stock because a, a bunch of the mat, you know, you know that mounting process. If, if it's too humid in the plant, when they, I don't want to go into the whole thing, but they have to cut the board, right? Uh-huh. The board is not 100% dry, or it's a little bit humid as the blade cuts through and then comes back up again. You uh, grab the edge of the film that's on the cardboard and pulls it up. Uh, I see. So a bunch of the games on that fold had a little bit of, you know, a little bit of imperfection, which, but, you know, GMT is a class A plus outfit. And if you get a bit, you know, map with an imperfection. And so there was a fair number of them, unfortunately, on the, on the empire of the sun. So anybody who got a bad, well, first of all, they had opened all the games. They looked at them, but still a few got through that process. You got a bad board. They'd send you a new board, right? They, yeah. you know, so that got done, but then they ran out, but then they had more orders and they had, um, there was enough bad boards. I don't know the exact number, but it was more than 10, they had to go back. China had to go back and print them again and send over a new set of boards to. So they had like a lot of games, but they they were short like you know a thousand or fifteen hundred boards. I see. They they are now back in. They're all fine. They're back in the boxes, re-shrink wrapped, and ready to go. So it was temporarily out of stock only because they were out of the maps. Okay. 
that's all been fixed. So no, the game is in print. Okay. Because I thought they, so I mean, I have my copy. I mean, my copy sitting over here on the shelf that uh, showed up with the. I was on the P500 for that one Thank this you. summer, and uh, unfortunately, I haven't played it because there was this other game, uh, Churchill, that I ended up playing. And there's only I can only play one game at a time. So if you can fix that, uh, I would, yeah, that would I, be helpful. Well, first of all, let me say, you know, and to anybody, look, I am humbled by the fact that anybody wants to play my. I've been doing this now a uh, long time. I mean, I've been doing this since I was 20. Two and I'm now 61. So you know we're we're closing in on 40 years of designing games professionally and getting paid for it. And one, I'm very beholding and humbled by the fact that people like what I do and that's allowed me to do it this many years because I enjoy that. You know this is what I enjoy doing. Mm-hmm. I love, but I can't do it without people who want to play them. And so I appreciate the fact that people want to play my games and are you know you know obviously I have my detractors and God love them for that. They're w- welcome to it and. Some of the detractors, you know, you know, ha- you know, would like to see me, you know, you know, not be living, but I, I think that's a little bit extreme, but okay. Um, but regardless of that, uh, I think that the vast majority of people, you know, have been supporting and like what I do, and I thank them for that. I mean, what else can I do? I mean, um, and and when I and I, you know, I'm now teaching at Columbia University and NYU, um, and I teach consulting, but now I'm going to be teaching a, a course, uh, developing a course for Columbia in. The use of war games in business, but it's really my way of starting to build a uh, war gaming design. Um, uh, you know, if you think about it, uh, you can get a degree in film. In fact, I think Steven Spielberg. You know, you can see like his THX one one three eight. It started out as like one of his like projects when he was in college, right? So he right. has a film degree. There are a lot of people have film degrees. Well, the video game market. Talking to the video game guys, Hollywood last year was an eighty five billion dollar market. And the video game market worldwide was seventy-five billion dollars. Right, right, yeah. They, they, people quote that quite. I mean, that's. A, I mean, that's yeah. a that's a, a huge. Um, and so yeah. it's a different. But it's. But okay, keep going. I'm sorry, I was going to interject. So, so, so what I what I'm starting to see there's there's a program at NYU run by Frank Lance, which is a phenomenal program. In fact, I'm, we're doing a Churchill event there uh, this coming Thursday night. Uh, with the students there on Churchill, talking about Churchill as a three-player design, you know, from a professional design point of view, because okay. these guys. But the point is, there, there are starting to be courses in game design because, just like film, video games and um, game design and all writ large are now a mainstream, uh, you know, skill, sure. and people can be trained in it. And so I, I'm hoping to start to develop or become part of the crowd that teaches the next generation of designers at least what I already know, and I know a lot. You know, I've done this a long time, and so I'm kind of looking forward to that opportunity because I like to, I like the interaction with. Um, you know, 20, 20 somethings and teen, you know, people that are college and graduate school age. I, I like that interaction. I, I really do enjoy them and being, you know, being able to, you know, pass along, uh, you know, my, my knowledge to another generation. And so I want to do this in game design. And so I'm starting to do that. And the other thing I tell people is most video games, you know, video, producing a video game is very expensive now. You know, most video games are probably running in tens of millions of dollars to produce a top end video game. And it might even be more now. It's right, it more pretty, than that. Yeah. It's probably, you know, we're talking, starting to, talk, it's starting to approach what a movie would be. Not quite, but it's starting to get there. And a lot of movies use, extensively use those same technologies to, you know, make, you know, the CGI stuff is coming from the same well of expertise. And so many of these, um, uh, video games, at least all the ones I'm aware of, I'm sure there are exceptions. They start out as board games to make sure that the game works, you know, that, the, you know, the gameplay and the narrative and how it comes together works manually before you start launching all of the, you know, the tens of millions of dollars of work. So there is, even in the video game world, there's this tremendous need for um, 
people who are actually no kidding manual board game designers that make the prototypes for the video games. Right. Yeah. Pro. I mean, that's yeah. That's a that's a big uh, a big thing in certain genres. Obviously, not all genres. There are yeah, genres I, where that doesn't that doesn't apply. But um, well, it, well, they call it different things now. Like you know, if you're doing like a Halo game, you got the de- design levels. You know, what are the, all of the you know, there is, but they would do a, a schematic of that, even if, you know, there's a, there is a point where you're still going to do a, you know, it could be on a computer, but your point is you're doing a, what you could print out and actually, right. you know, track and look at and change and all that. And so that is the skill that I still have in abundance. And so, you know, I'm looking forward to teaching that to other people as they want to design a video game, because otherwise, you know, it's, once you launch all of that 3D graphics and all this other stuff going, that's a lot of money is going into the kitty. And if there's no game behind all of that, right. Uh, you know, that's a bad idea. That's a that's a money loser. So again, I think that my skills remain very relevant to the video game industry. I'm just not hooked up with those people. But you know, who knows? Maybe someday somebody will, you know, somebody at, uh, you know, Blizzard or um, you know Bethesda Bethesda Studios or will uh, reach out and well, say hi. Bethesda's right, right. In, uh, well, you're in New York now. When you were, no, I, in, no, they were around. The, they they started Bethesda, though yeah. they they're, they're worldwide. But yeah. yeah, I was a huge. I still. I mean, I stopped playing Skyrim just because I I, I was going to lose my life. <laughs> So I mean, that, that is amazing, that thing. Yeah. So tell me, tell me this: if you, since you're so interested in the Pacific Theater, did you have you played uh, Gary Grisby's War in the Pacific? Because Plan oh. Orange, I mean, there's a there's a Plan Orange, you know, uh, whole. Uh, there's so, a, so I know Gary, by the way. I mean, uh, I haven't seen Gary in. You know, remember Sid Meier's, Gary Grisby, Bruce Shelley, you know, far more, um, you know, uh, far more famous and successful than I've ever been. Uh, we all came from the same crowd. You know, I, mm-hmm. I know them personally. I, now I haven't been around them in you know decades, but when we, when we were young, yeah. um, you know, we we were together. You know, where we hung around once in a while with each other. But especially, I knew Shelley uh, probably the best, and I knew Gary, and you know, great guys. You know, they, they, we come from the same stock. Now I went down to the defense consulting way to make my real living in life, but they went down this route, and they've been enormously successful because of their talent. Right. So. Um, you know, so it, it, you know, I understand where they're coming from. They, you know, it, and again, when I was in the uh, defense sector, uh, I developed uh, huge um, computer simulation projects uh, that nobody will ever see, but really successful um, large-scale computer sims. You know, I've, I've done them for years. Mm-hmm. So, is that's uh, is that something that you want to? Um, I mean, would you would you be um, involved in in making some? I know they're making computer conversions. I guess they're ports of some of the, uh, like Lee Brumacum Woods' Night Fighter, I think, is going to be digital. Um, GMT's having some difficulties with the uh, Twilight Struggle digital uh, game, but is that something that you would want you would want to see happen to some of your designs? Well, well, first of all, it has happened to some of my designs. If you remember, I actually won a... Well, uh, great Battles of History, yes. The, yeah, the great, great Battles of Alexander, I play. It's actually, I have it sitting next to me. Yeah, yeah, yeah I, I actually won uh, awards for that one. I worked with a company in Utah... Uh, one funny story about that. So my son Grant at the time was like four years old when I was doing, uh, you know, the conversion from the Great Battles of, of Alexander to the Great Battles of Alexander on the computer version, right? Mm-hmm. So, uh, and luckily they were in Utah. So I would get home from work, let's say, at like six o'clock at night, right? Yep. But it's still four o'clock in Utah. Sure. So they're still at work. And so I always work from, uh, I get home at six and I would work from like six to eight with the guys in Utah and they would send me the newest build. And remember, this is like, you know, this is the, you know, downloading, sending the files over could take on my modem at that time could take like, you know, four hours, right? right. So sometimes one night I was just spent pulling the files in and, and in Grant, when he was four, I would, he loved the elephant. So I used to let him play test the game. Now he wasn't playing the game 
I just want to see the, and I would just watch what he did and he would just be, you know, very excited, brilliant little kid, but mm-hmm. very excited. He's clicking everywhere and all this. And he kept, he, he could crash the program in five minutes every single time. Right. You and, doing, and then I would write back to the guys and say, okay, you know, when you click on a unit, you know, in that game, if you click on a unit, it lights up an area where the unit can move. And Grant would just click somewhere else where he wanted to go. <laughs> And that would crash the program, yeah. and he crashed it. But that was one I remember distinctly. So I wrote that back to them, and they said, "Well, who would do that?" I said, "Just fix it, please." <laughs> the point was is that if my four-year-old would do it, somebody would do it by accident, crash the program, and be unhappy. So sure. crash that thing. And four-year-old was amazing play tester. He didn't play the game. I played the game for balance. I let him play it to crash it, and he was extraordinarily good at that. <laughs> So I have to say that the game is four-year-old proof when it finally came out. Yep. It's still, I have a, I have a CD sitting in a little Ziploc baggie over here. Um, that that uh, that was a different time in sort of game, de- in, in uh, sort of computer game development. Uh, you know, there's a lot of stuff that... Uh, oh, but, but what was interesting but for me as a designer, what I learned from it is that there are things I can expect you as a human to do and mm-hmm. process I modified the design. My real work was with them was I modified the design so that they could program it. So everything, if you were to take the game literally, for, so first off, you look at this, you know, what is it, 40-page rule booklet. It's a design document writ large, right? I mean, right. The, the board game comes with human programming rules, mm-hmm. you know, and, you know, the script is there, and so you can port it. You have a design document. Actually, probably a better design document than you would have if you actually tried to write a design document. But what I can have a human do procedurally in the game it's very clumsy for a computer you know it just you know it just it, it's it, the computer doesn't and i actually i actually by the way back in the day i actually can program in machine language back in the day when i was young they hadn't they had punch card i actually know how to program but only at machine language level with punch cards i don't hmm. i didn't learn i don't i don't do python and all the stuff my son knows how to do now but he's a he's actually a software developer but okay. um so I can, so I understand how compu- I know how chips work. I mean, at a very fundamental, probably more so than people who actually just know Python, because I actually worked with chips back in the day. I used to program them directly, so I understand how a computer works very well. And so computers like certain environments. They like large flat files. They 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 process information differently than a human does, and all that kind of stuff. And so I modified Alexander and the other games in the series. <clears throat> So that from a programming perspective, it did more or less the same thing as a human would do, uh-huh. but procedurally, in what's in the back room is totally different than what, the way the game does it. It hmm. gets in the same place, but I use a different path. So I, I was at the time that that was my evaluated to the project was I was actually redesigning the game so they could do certain things easier and more efficiently for the computer. I remember in those days, uh, CPU was not unlimited like we have today. You know, so you had to understand that you only had so much CPU and you had to trade files in and out and caches and all that stuff. So that was more of a skill set that you had to change the design to fit that structure. Nowadays, you know, you have, you know, gigabytes of RAM and, you know, terabytes of storage. These problems, a lot of these problems go away. You don't have to be uh, efficient anymore because the, the, the brute force of the computer just overwhelmed. But that wasn't the case back in the uh, in the 80s and 90s. Well, I mean, it, it uh, the sort of the ambitions expand to um, to fill available performance. I think. I think you find that. Oh, with, uh, absolutely. Yeah. But but what I go back to is there is it all starts with how you're going to tell the you know, graphics and the interface and the AI are critical dimensions of the computer game version. But underneath all that, there has to be a story that's worth telling that people sure. want to play. Yep. And that's what the designer does. The designer tell 
creates the structure through which there is a story, a narrative, whatever it is, and how that story unfolds and gets told is the design piece, not the computer, you know, the computer piece. Mm-hmm. Then they make it, then they make it pretty and you know and make it exciting from a visual and you know sound and all that stuff perspective. But it does start with the story. Yeah. Well, I think that the, the the design aspect of games has come so far. I mean, there was I was just listening to some other uh, interviews that Soren had done with with uh, people where they were just talking about the early parts of the uh, video game industry where there were really no designers. They were, you know, basically artists and and programmers, and they were making games. And once you add the add the design aspect to it, I think you get you open up a lot of things. Yeah. Um, is there anything we've missed? Is there have I have I missed a crucial? Uh, element of Mark Herman history or gaming history that you have some insight that I have neglected? Well, you know, this has been a free... First, I've enjoyed the conversation. It's been freewheeling. I, I think that... I, I think I probably will end up boring enough of an audience for now to, to you know, <laughs> to, not, to not take it any further. So I, I think we've talked about a lot. I'm sure there are other questions, but I can't think of what they are right now. So, uh, But I, I've enjoyed the conversation. Great. Well, thanks so much for taking a couple hours of time and talking about... Uh, your history in gaming, and uh, as uh, as a corollary, a history of our hobby that we uh, we all love so much. Thanks a lot, Mark. If anybody wants to get a hold of me, I'm at uh, Mark Herman at AOL.com. You know, uh, one word. Perfect.